Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. BFFT. From the Pack West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. Big, big show today. Jake Dickert, Washington State football coach, will be with us at 4 o'clock. I want you here for it. Going to ask him, uh, I'm going to ask him if he heard whether or not Chance Nolan, Ben Gulbrinson starting at quarterback. Somebody told me that some kind of cougar operatives that listen to this radio show. Oh, yeah, they're down here. Heard on Wednesday when Jonathan Smith said Ben Gobernson was going to working towards starting at quarterback. Somebody told me that somebody immediately took that information to Jake Dickert at Washington State. We'll find out what he has in store for Oregon State. Big college football weekend. I'll give my picks. John Wilner will be along to debate my picks. Anna will join the show. We'll find out what your peeve is like we do every Friday. We'll talk a little Al Michaels as well. And we'll say goodbye to to a cast member on this show. Sean, let's not wait any longer. We're two minutes into the show. Sean, you're saying goodbye. Where are you going, Sean? What is going on here? I'm going to be helping out with the Blazers this season. Uh, Communications assistant. Oh, what position will you be playing? Uh, Communication, not Uh, small forward, unfortunately. (laughs) I know they needed a starting small forward. Uh, Communications (laughs) assistant, you'll catch me. uh, Yeah, I'll be passing stats around and, uh, yeah, you know, transcribing interviews, doing stuff like that around the Moda Center this season. We may see you yet. You're not getting out of our life. You're just transitioning. Uh, over. I'm sorry that we're demoting you over to the Blazers, but hey, congr- congrats to you getting over there and uh, you know chasing your dream. I I have told you. I think I told you in the beginning. I don't like people to stay long. I like you to stay a while, but not forever, because I don't want to hold people back, especially people like yourself. You're a young person trying to make your way in the world. That's right. That's right. I appreciate that. So uh, if we can just make this a little portion of this opening segment about you, can you tell listeners, you know, give an idea, and don't be afraid of hurt feelings, what you learned on this show, what was fun, what wasn't fun. Come on, exit interview right now. Let's do this publicly. Okay, well, I, you know, I think, uh, John, I've learned a lot about just sports. And, like, for me, for me, like, it was always about what's on the field. But I think through your show, and I think what makes your show great, is that you talk a lot about the business side of sports. And we talked a lot over my time about conference realignment and, uh, you know, USC, UCLA leaving the Pac-12. So I, I think one of the biggest things that I've learned in terms of what we talk about on the show is just, uh, you know, like, there's a lot to do with sports that doesn't happen on the field. You know what I mean? So I think that's uh, that's been kind of a, a key key piece that I've learned. And I've also learned a lot about the sports media business, you know, um, ads and all that. Um, you know, so I, I've learned I've learned quite a bit. I think my favorite memory uh, from my time here was uh, the golf tournament that you did, the BFT mm. Foundation Golf really? Tournament. Yeah, okay. yeah, got to host the show. I don't know how. I feel like I was like fourth in line to host the show, but then Judah's sick and you're out, and you know Steven I think was just starting, so somehow uh, I was given the car keys to host that show. So um, that was a lot of fun interviewing all of those people. But you know every day's been a blast, and um, you know always great guest. And uh, I think my favorite parts about 
um, this show, we're probably like the four o'clock hour, you know, when Anna comes on and oftentimes we kind of, we, we get out of the sports topics and we just talk about whatever the heck comes up. I mean, just literally whatever comes to our minds. Yeah. How should we find your replacement? Because I've, I've wrestled with, you know, do we, do we, uh, you know, hold a national search or do we get on Tinder and start swiping? Mm. Like, how do we find your replacement if we're looking for the next Sean? You know, I think Adam Sussman, who worked this job before me, and him and I, we came from the same student radio station at the University of Oregon. So I think that we got a little pipeline going. And I know for a fact there's going to be some people that are interested in this job that came from the same student radio station, KWVA, uh, that we worked at. So I think that's an idea. But I think swiping on Tinder would be a good idea, too. Well, there you go. You have it, uh, Stephen. You gonna miss? You gonna miss Sean or no? Yeah, no. Sean, Sean's my guy. Uh, I like I like having Sean here. You know, I'd be taking a break and I'd go sit in the studio with Sean and we just uh, you know BS about random things and uh, yeah, you know, I, he became the USC fan on this show, which was good because me yeah. and you were uh, kind of the USC haters. I, I think it's kind of interesting that Sean is leaving a day before right USC season goes That's into right. the, into That's the right. toilet. It was all like, timed out. It was all you, timed out. Do you really have a job with the Blazers, or are you just going like, <laughs> you know what, this is a good time for me to get out. The stock is high. I'm selling. I'm out. Yeah, yeah. I needed to get out before USC season goes goes downhill. We'll, we'll see, though. Watch watch me leave, and then USC wins tomorrow night. You know, the thing about Sean also is he teaches me about what the young people do. You know, I you know I have a high school life, but like I don't really care what the high schoolers are doing. Like Sean, Sean's at that perfect age, you know, young twenties, just having fun by the pool, you know, thriving at Halloween, those type of things. Mm. Like that's what I need to know. So that's why I like talking to Sean. Yeah, uh, he he keeps us all young. I just like that. I like that you have a different life experience than us. You're at a different point in your life. You're still dressing up at Halloween. You are dating. You are you know excited about the Blazers. Still, they haven't beat that out of you yet, and so. I think uh, this is uh, this is good for you, but uh, for our show, not so good. We will try to fill your shoes, but as as uh, one Yankee manager many years ago said to Wally Pip, "Have a seat. We're going to try this Lou Gehrig kid. Maybe there's a Lou Gehrig waiting behind you. Maybe, maybe could be. All right, good stuff, man. I appreciate that you're here. Hey guys, uh, did you guys watch Thursday Night Football? No, no. It, man, it was bad again. Why is it so bad? Why is the NFL struggling with Thursday Night Football? Well, isn't there? I, I I'm pretty sure there's a rule in the NFL that every team has to play on Thursday night. Or am I wrong about this? I think that's I, I think that's the case. I thought that was the case. So like we're gonna get bad matchups, but it it just sucks that it's like they put the worst teams involved. And now next week, uh, you know, it's uh, Kyler Murray and the new Call of Duty game comes out, so we don't know how he's gonna play. Like this, <laughs> it's just <laughs> like that's a thing. That's an actual thing. Yeah. He uh, yeah, but no, I mean that Bears Commanders game was really bad. Like really bad. Yeah, it, it was second week in a row, and I think even though yeah, every team has to play, it's kind of like the Pac-12 network. Like, everybody has to play a certain number of minimum times on the Pac-12 network. The problem is uh, we're just getting bad matchups on Thursday night. We'll talk more about Al Michaels coming up later in the show. Which college football game are you guys most looking forward to? Alabama versus Tennessee, I think. Mm. You know, USC, USC-Utah really excites me, but if I'm being brutally honest here, I know this is a Pac-12-focused show. I cannot wait for the possibility. I think it's a really real possibility that the Volunteers take down Alabama tomorrow, and I think that's going to be a really fun game. Yeah, it's USC-Utah for me. I mean, just being the Pac-12 guys that we are, I'm excited about that game, but uh, I have a feeling that Tennessee-Alabama is not going to be as exciting as you hope, Sean. I mm. think Alabama kind of puts it on them. 
You think that you think that's it's going to be a rude awakening? Take, yeah, it's like gonna a, take Tennessee to the woodshed and remind them who the SEC power is. It's going to be like a hundred thousand fans in Orange, and they're relevant for the first time forever. Bryce Young's banged up. I, I kind of like Tennessee in that game. But that's the thing: it's the first. When was the last time Tennessee's been relevant enough to be like, you know what? We maybe we could beat Alabama and have a realistic chance, and not just be that crazy fan that says, "Well, of course we're going to win." But like they have a legit chance this year. Like it's a lot of pressure on them, man. I think Alabama's got them. When you guys look at nationally, you'll be tuned into that game. What about the Pac-12 games? Is 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 it Utah USC? Is it something else? Utah USC is great. I also think we've talked about Oregon State, Washington State uh, on the show throughout the week. I I kind of see that game as a little bit of an elimination game. I think the loser of that game is completely out of the mix when it comes to the uh, the conference championship. And I think the winner kind of hangs around. And I think those are two really even teams. I like Oregon State simply because of home field advantage and also a couple of injuries. But I think that's going to be a really fun one in Corvallis tomorrow. Yeah, it's the USC-Utah game. And, and, John, looking at that, it's, you know, these four teams, USC, Utah, Oregon, UCLA, all those teams are really competing for that Pac-12 title game. And two losses, you're basically out. And so yeah. Utah, it's a must-win for them. If USC gets this win, looking at their schedule, they should be 10-0 and for sure when they go and face UCLA on the road. So I think it's a huge game for USC if they want a chance to get to the college football playoff. If they win this game, they should be 10-0 heading those last two games. There was a piece in the LA Times today about Caleb Williams, and it kind of it, it casts some, uh, I don't want to say doubt, but it cast a uh, critical eye towards his play, saying that, yes, he had a great game against Arizona State, but he's been underwhelming in a few games, including the game against Oregon State, under 200 yards passing in, in two of his last three games. Something wrong with Caleb Williams? Yeah, uh, I don't think so. I think he's been all right. I, I think there's just a lot of expectations. And he was so good at the start of the year when they played Rice and Stanford and Fresno State. It was when that Oregon State game happened and that good defense that he started struggling a little bit. I think he's fine. I think he's just run into a little better competition uh, these last few games. You know, Washington State has a good defense. Arizona State has good athletes. So I'm not too worried about it. Uh, it will be interesting this this week against Utah because this Utah defense has struggled. And we talked about the loss of Devin Lloyd, but... The Utah defense has struggled kind of in general, so can USC and Caleb Williams get back on track? They need to make some big plays against Utah. Have you guys seen that stat where he is the best quarterback in the Pac-12 against man defense, and he's the worst quarterback statistically mm. against zone defense? And I think that's really interesting. And I also think going into tomorrow's game, there's a little bit of a storyline about Utah. You know, they haven't been running a lot of zone this year. I think UCLA kind of killed them because they were running a lot of man defense. So uh, there's kind of that going on. Caleb Williams not good against the zone, but Utah's been a little bit, uh, you know, not willing to run the zone so we'll see we'll see tomorrow tomorrow night it's by far the biggest test uh for the tro- for the trojans so far this season it is interesting you say that people are thinking caleb Williams is struggling because uh anthony tresh at uh pro football focus he's a leeds college analyst he came out with his top 10 quarterbacks in college football this year he has caleb williams at number two yeah and, and so it, it's i think it's just the expectations of they thought it'd be four or five touchdowns every single game and that's just not what we're getting I also, I look at him, remember we had him on the show on Media Day, and I got to say, I, I left the interview with him underwhelmed. I, had, I heard other people say, oh, it was a great interview, and I, I was puzzled by that because, and maybe some of it was I was in person, and I could see that he had an entourage with him, and he was wearing a suit, it was a designer suit, and he was talking all about the sports he played when he was a kid, but he wasn't talking about team sports. He was saying that he, you know, he, he was a swimmer, and he played tennis, and and I thought, gosh, does he know how to lead? Does he know how to be part of a team? So I kind of just filed that away, and I'm watching him. 
but I've been relatively impressed with him in you know in some weeks. Like the Arizona State game, I thought it was his best game. And to your point about man versus zone, he's got great feet and he's got great athletic receivers. So I think when he's against man coverage, I think you know he's got uh, you know the ability to kind of you know scramble around, buy extra time, and he's got the kind of receivers that are just going to beat people one on one. Yeah, and I think you know to your point about uh, media day, and you know, is he is he an individual or is he a team player? I think that's going to continue to grow, but I do think that he has God given talent that is going to carry him in his football career. And I think you see guys in the NFL, Aaron Rodgers especially is the first guy that comes to mind. Russell Wilson especially lately, Tom Brady lately, like. You know, some guys are just talented. They're not as much uh, the leadership team player, and they end up succeeding anyways. Yeah, this, this game is just fascinating, though, because, you know, it's like I said, if USC gets this win, you know, at, at most, they're going to have one Pac-12 loss. Like, this, if they win on this Saturday, they're pretty much guaranteed to get to Vegas. Huge game for both programs, and it'll be fun to see that. I will be there in person. I will be in Salt Lake City. If you want to read what I write off that game, uh, I'll take you behind the scenes at johnconzano.com. Uh, coming up, what's your peeve? We're going to do it early in the show. Start lining up now, 503-417-7575. Get it off your chest. I don't want you taking it into the weekend. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald Face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I want to know what your peeve is. I want to know what's bothering you, what you've been carrying around all week. You got a neighbor who's, uh, you know, driving you crazy. They got a plum tree that's dropping plums in your backyard. You got somebody else uh, in your family that's bothering you. You got a coworker who's a loud talker. What is it? Somebody uh, leaving, uh, you know, stealing sandwiches out of the uh, refrigerator at the office. I don't know. Whatever's bothering you, I want it off your chest. I want you going into the weekend with a clear mind. Uh, 503-417-7575 number. Line up now. We're doing What's Your Peeve? We're doing it early in the show. Let's do it. What's your peeve? Oh, that pisses me off. That pisses me right off. Call 503-417-7575 and tell Kinzano what's your peeve on the BFT. Brought to you by Revolution Dental Implant Center. A smile revolution, one day solution. All right, I'm going to go first today, and I want you to line up. Grab a line. We have two lines open at 417-7575 in the 503 area code. But I'm going to go first today because this has been bothering me. I saw the L.A. Times did a ranking of 23 fast food chains. They ranked the official fast food burger power rankings. Uh, this bothers me. You know why it bothers me? We have a, we're in a society where we feel the need to rank everything, make lists, who was the greatest at this, who was the greatest at that, and it doesn't really mean anything. The official fast food burger power rankings only reminds me that the AP preseason top 25 poll is also meaningless. There's no meaning. There's no value. There's no reason. There's no rhyme. I don't understand why we do it. I don't feel a need to sit around in my spare time ranking my children least favorite to most favorite. I don't feel a need to, you know, to to sit around and go, gosh, what is my favorite NFL team? Let me rank them one to twenty-eight. And the last thing I need is a ranking of fast food burger joints uh, of the best twenty-three in LA. I don't need it. I'm not clicking on it. I don't feel the desire. It bothers me. It's my peeve. Am I wrong, guys? Uh, I clicked on it. I wanted to see what they had to say. Uh, you know. <laughs> 
I you know, I didn't I like to disagree with it, but yeah, no, I agree. Like you don't have to rank anything. The thing about that is is like so let's just say you like uh you know, for bad let's just say in the NBA. Let's say you say LeBron James is the best player of all time. Well, that doesn't mean you hate Michael Jordan. No. Right? But like that's the way we all take it is you like one, you hate the other. So I agree with you. Ranking is stupid because if you're ranked one and two, I still think both of you are awesome. But at the same time, I do kind of want to see what people think. Fat Burger came in one on their list. Carl's Jr. two. It just this list makes no sense. Uh, by the way, I'll put Killer Burger up there. I'll put Killer Burger in the Michael James place up higher. PDX uh, sliders. Yeah, there you go. There you go. All right, what what's your peeve? All right, well, my peeve is uh, that Sean's leaving because I finally got comfortable talking to him and being my friend, and now he's leaving. So mad yeah. at him for that. No, just joking. I like Sean, and uh, and he knows he knows that I'm proud of him. Um, you know, I got a lot of peeves, John. I got a lot of peeves. <laughs> you could be mad at him that, for that, though. Like no, I was, I was disappointed when I heard he was leaving. And part of it is, look, he's chasing his dream. He's going to work for the Blazers or whatnot. But a part of it for me is like, you know, um, I don't like when we get somebody trained, we get somebody comfortable, we get somebody kind of settled in, and then we get in rhythm, and then they leave. But that that seat tends to be a revolving yeah. door because. It's made for a young person, and young people are transient. Yeah, it's disappointing because I like Sean. You know, Sean. Sean's a good guy, and we've gotten we got to be friendly. So, uh, yeah, you know, I got to be nice again to someone new, which you know, it's not always my thing. But uh, for my real peeve is parking in downtown Portland is way too expensive. And as a guy that has to like drop their kids off and like at school and then at other places before I come here, like I have to drive here. I can't really take public transit, or else I get here too late. I just hate paying for parking at a general. Like it's just a generality. I just hate doing it. And just having to do it, I just it makes me mad every day. I'm just still mad about it. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. Thank I, you. I actually think like, and nobody likes the parking enforcement people either. Like, who takes that job? Who you know? Because I'm not saying that you know. I don't. I'm not mad at those people, but I I, I don't I don't think those people are driving around getting a lot of hey, how are you today? And <laughs> a lot you of know, smiles, lot of like smiles everybody kind of. Scowls at him going, there's the person who's going to give me a ticket uh, if I'm two minutes late on the meter. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a job that someone that likes power. They want the power. There you go. Sean, what's your peeve? Your last peeve. Yeah, oh. dealer's choice. You guys want hacker or grocery shopping? I want them both. You want them both. Okay, well, grocery shopping, <laughs> i got to be more efficient because I like to go to the grocery store like twice a week and spend way too much money. And then like after three days, I have like no more meals and then it's right back to the grocery store. So i got to figure something out. And then also I've been getting these sketchy notifications from Apple about how someone's trying to access my my my. Apple account and uh, you know I'll be listening on Spotify and then like the, the song will randomly change and like my bitmoji got erased so there's some sketchy stuff going on with some hacker like I woke up to some notification like someone tried accessing your accessing your Gmail account from some random country so I'm changing all my passwords mm. it's been a it's been a little bit of a, a weird week with that as well yeah I'm sorry that happened that to you. Is, I, that's peeve worthy yeah yeah, I think that's more peeve worthy than the grocery store. The grocery store issue kind of is a you problem. Doesn't yeah, it sound well, like you, you're not advice. a yeah, like, tell me again what's happening with the grocery store. I, well, this? I just spend a bunch of money, and then like after three days, I'm out of food. Like, I, ha I have a solution for you. It's to find a find a lady friend that you know is smarter than you and can my write out a list. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I would do. Yeah, okay. find a lady. Yeah. Because I so, do the same thing. Like when I, if I was single, like I would just buy like pop tarts and like candy bars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you shouldn't. If you go to the grocery store and whatever you put on the conveyor belt, you know that the checker's judging you. Okay, the checker's mm -hmm. there 
It's kind of like the lifeguard of the grocery store and is sitting there watching kind of, you know, the action and making sure everyone's safe and, you know, scanning the food, paper, uh, you want a paper bag or not, you know, that kind of thing. But the, but the checker, if you feel embarrassed about what's on the conveyor belt, then you need to reassess what you're doing in the store, and that's a you thing. That's not my problem, though. I'm saying, like, I, I'm on a budget, right? I don't have a ton of income. Like, you know, like, so I, I'm i going to the grocery store, and I'm hoping that my groceries last me a long time, so mm. I don't have to go back to the grocery store. And it's not like I'm eating all the time, but I just find ways to be so inefficient with it where I'm kind of like three days later after going to the grocery store, oh, I don't have anything to eat. Is it like yeah. a waste thing, like like stuff goes old and you don't eat it, or you just run out? I just don't get enough meals. I guess I don't know. You need to go. Uh, you need more. You need more staples. Like mm-hmm. are you? Ba- you're not buying like a twenty pound bag of rice. You're mm-hmm. not buying like the bulk pasta. Yeah, that's, that's a good what point. you. At your age, man, that's what I was doing. Yeah. I was, you know, I was going pasta. I was going rice. I was going chicken. Whatever. You know, you do what you can. You got to do. Yeah, and I'm I'm switching between Trader Joe's and Fred Meyer. I'm considering yeah. Costco. Yeah, I got to try to find the right one. I, if you're going to Trader Joe's or Market of Choice or uh, you know Whole Foods or any of that, then you're probably not getting a lot of bang for your buck. Oh, wow. let's be real. Okay, yeah, let's be expensive? real. I wouldn't. Tra- I would oh, yeah. lump Trader Joe's into the Whole Foods mm-hmm. new seasons. Trader Joe's is cheap. Yeah, you think so? Yeah, it's but just are not you, a lot. Are you buying things at Trader Joe's that you really need, or are you buying things at Trader Joe's that are kind of novelty items? Yeah, maybe it's that. Well, maybe you just that. you just said you're running out of food. And you run my money, so it can't be that cheap. Sean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think uh, I think that's it. Well, now that now that's a your issue with the Blazers. So <laughs> they go, probably go got, get it yeah, done. They got food in the media area for you. Right. Yep. That's a nice part. There will be a meal. There will be a meal yeah, every, I, every shift. I've always wondered what they do with like the leftover hot dogs and everything after the games. Because you know, what do they do with that? Are they throwing them out? Where they give them to not. employees? What I are they doing? Not. Sean's gonna have like a backpack full of hot dogs. <laughs> he's gonna have. <laughs> Sean's gonna be like, "Come on over. I'm having dinner," and he's got like slices of pizza and hot dogs <laughs> in the concession. It's on his Tinder profile. I get. <laughs> I get free food at the Moda Center. I work for the Blazers and I get free hot dogs. Come on, I over. like that too. All right. Well, I'm uh, I'm glad you know you do a great job behind the scenes, Sean, and I wish you the best, of course. And uh, I think we've given you an appropriate goodbye. Yeah, already I appreciate on that, show, John. So. Appreciate that, Stephen. Thank you, guys. All right. All right coming up, uh, we're going to do a few things here. I am uh, I I have a I have a lingering peeve with Al Michaels. I don't think Anna agrees. She's going to pop into the studio. Also, um, we're going to talk a little bit uh, to Jake Dickert, the Washington State football coach. They have a game coming up at Research Stadium on Saturday. Wilner and I, John Wilner of the Bay Area News Group, we, uh, we are doing the Conzano and Wilner podcast, but we are going to debate the picks for the weekend. We don't agree. We don't agree on USC and Utah. I think Utah's going to win. He thinks USC's going to win. We're going to hash it out coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. I want you here for it all. you got the bald-faced truth statewide on the Bald Face Truth Radio Network. Leave it locked in right here. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, it was another Thursday night stinker last night on Amazon as the Washington Commanders defeated the Bears 12-7 to in a game that wasn't very entertaining or interesting or exciting. Last week on Thursday Night Football, the Colts beat the Broncos 12 to 9. If you can get to 12 points on Thursday night, you uh, are 2 and 0 in the last 2 weeks. Al Michaels got some credit. Legendary Al Michaels. Do you believe in miracles? He got credit a couple weeks ago for 
calling it how he saw it as the Colts and the Broncos were playing a bad football game. Like a lot of people went, hey, cred to uh, Al Michaels for calling out bad programming, even though he's on the payroll of the game. He did it again last night, and he's getting roasted a little bit. Petros Papadakis, who's a friend of this show, Fox Sports broadcaster, analyst, he's been on a ton of games. He tweeted out, Al is not above this project. He took the job, uh, and he called it insufferable to hear Al Michaels and the way he's calling the game. Anna has popped into the studio, and Anna, I want to ask you about that. Like, you've been... You've been on television news for years, and there have been days when maybe it's a slow news day. And I've been on radio. There's some doldrums on radio in the summer where there's not anything going on. And I always kind of wrestle with, like, I want to be authentic, and I want to call it how I see it, and I appreciate Al to a certain extent. But I also think, like, Petros is right. Like, you're part of this broadcast. How much of what a broadcaster does or a journalist does is entertainment versus journalism and commentary, what's the blend there? And is Al Michaels wrong for bellyaching and bitching about the job that he's getting paid millions of dollars to do on Thursday night? I actually don't think he's wrong at all. I feel like he's channeling a little bit of Brockmire, which is the fictional show about a sports broadcaster who really calls it like it is, not for the faint of heart. Um, but I, I think, like, I think in, especially in this day and age, people can sniff out if you're not being authentic, it's like kind of all of our BS meter is up really high. And it was trying to paint a prettier picture for what was happening during these last few games than what people at home are actually watching and feeling and experiencing. Then he gets accused of being a fraud and a shill and trying to sell a product that isn't what it actually is. I think it's a little bit different because he, as you know, a commentator he is commentating like it's not just his job to deliver the facts, ma'am, in the sort of traditional neutral journalism sense. You know, I certainly had my days of getting assigned to a story about, you know, a tax levy or some kind of bond measure or something that, you know, particularly in broadcast television is not visually exciting. And yes, that was my challenge for that day or that assignment to make it interesting and relevant and relatable to anybody who would be interested in watching that story. Um, but I think that's a little bit different because, you know, I was not in a role of offering an opinion per se on those stories. It was just my job to do a public service and explain what might have been a complicated, boring TV news story in, a, in an interesting manner. In the course of a season, you're going to get bad games. But it seems like the Thursday night games, the, I'm not going to say seems, it the Thursday night games outside of the very first one with the Chargers and the Chiefs have been terrible. And the last two weeks have been particularly bad. Now, I'm looking at the rest of the regular season on Thursday night, and it, it's evident what they did on the very first week. They took a great matchup. They knew people were going to be tuned into Amazon. But Thursday night's leftovers. Like you're, It's not like you're eating out and you're eating at the right place. Thursday night has become leftovers for the NFL. It's not the product they're selling on Sundays to their primary network partners. It's not Sunday night football, which is incredibly lucrative. And it's not Monday night football, which is an institution. They have put a leftover game, the Colts and the Broncos, the Commanders and the Bears. Next week, it's the Saints and the Cardinals. After that, it's the Ravens and the Buccaneers. Uh, you, don't, you have to look to week nine before you get a good team. You get the Eagles against 
the lowly Texans in week nine. Like, it's clear that they have scheduled these games as kind of leftovers, and the NFL is very intentional about it. What bothers me, I guess, a little bit about Al Michaels in that is that I have covered bad teams before. It's true. You don't want to sugarcoat. You don't want to mislead the audience. They can sniff it out in a heartbeat. But I think you also have to bring a certain level of enthusiasm and energy to the job. And I'm not hearing that from Al Michaels right now. He's sort of just going, oh, it's five punts tonight. and what? Like, I get it to a certain extent, but I think you've got to work harder when the when the product is bad to try to make it interesting. You're not going to, you don't want to mislead the public, but they, I'll give an example. Like the Blazers one season won only 21 games. Okay. They were headed to the draft lottery. They were terrible. This was Steve Patterson era Blazers. I mean, I was looking around for several weeks towards the end of that season going, you could write how bad they are and you can kind of bitch and moan about it for, you know, ad nauseum. Right. But I started looking for like angles, like, all right, let me just go to lunch with Bill Shonley and write a column about Shonley because, uh, and how is he feeling about this season? And maybe tell the story from a different angle. It's really hard when the product is bad to try to get people engaged with the project product, right? Uh, we all know when teams win that more people watch. When teams win and the product's good, more people read. You can't fake that. But what you can do if you're Al Michaels in this situation is maybe he should be talking about what's wrong with Thursday night football instead of just bellyaching about all the punts and the turnovers. I mean, I think he kind of is talking about what's wrong, though. Like, I don't think it's necessarily his job to make it that much more interesting than it is. Is Like, I, I think there's, I think, frankly... He may be getting people to tune in just to listen to him bitch and moan about how bad it is. Like, that's kind of like the tenor of our society today. They might actually just turn in to watch the train wreck and watch him commentate on a train wreck. Because at some point, you know, the amount of discussion that has engaged on this issue is way more than it has been in the past when it's just like a normal, competitive and healthy game like if you look on social media, everybody's talking about Al Michaels and how basically he might retire mid-game during one of these uh, <laughs> Thursday nights. But you've been in a situation where, like, the equivalent in television news, let's just say a house fire. It's a common occurrence. You know, it's a regular weekend night or weekday night uh, in the middle of non-sweeps period. There's a house fire. You're a reporter. You're dispatched to it. There's fire trucks. There's smoke. There's a little flame. They won't let you get close. How in your career, give me an example, how do you take a common occurrence, a story that maybe isn't very compelling, happens all the time, it's the equivalent of Thursday Night Football, this, is, this sucks, it's boring, how do you make that compelling to, to a viewer? Well, I mean, I think the key is to find the characters, find the storyline, because you can, you can broad brush a story like a house fire or a shooting or any kind of, you know, story that generally finds its way into the first 10 minutes of a newscast. But what really sets it apart and makes it every story different are the people involved. So the more details that you can find about the people involved, like, I'll say this. If anything, maybe there's an opportunity here for Al Michaels or the research team that obviously is supporting him and feeding him information to talk about during the game, because I don't think we're all under any illusion that there's no, like, team of assistants, you know, who are providing information to the broadcasters. Maybe this is a better opportunity to help us understand the storylines behind the games. Like, 
help us to know the players better and the backgrounds that they come from and what they've overcome to make it to the NFL. I mean, there's there's a lot of potential there to still keep people engaged in the game somewhat, don't you think? I mean, I don't know. I don't watch as much football as you. If it's a bad game where there's no offense and it's not because – and the score is what it is, not because the defense is doing this amazing job, aren't you kind of inclined to just tune out regardless? I think in a game like that, it's still a one-score game, right? So you're talking about a 12-9 to game or a 12-7 to game. It's still a one-score game. Like, the outcome is out there. It's not like this is – 49 to 3 and we're all going, "Hey, this is over. Let's just play it out." So I think there's still a compelling angle to it. I also think it's interesting Amazon being the broadcaster of these games. I I suspect that Al Michaels is acting a little differently because Amazon is the employer. Like maybe Amazon has told him it's okay to engage. It's okay to be a little different because on regular on a regular network broadcast, a linear broadcast, the you can you can hear the announcers in blowout games or games that are not very interesting trying to give you a multitude of reasons to stay engaged they are highly reliant upon the next commercial break and selling commercials and keeping the rating points higher i'm wondering with amazon if they're not as interested or as um you know uh, maybe they're not paying attention like the alacrity isn't there when it comes to you know the motivation of holding the viewer for one more commercial break so they can get the ratings point. I'm wondering if Amazon's going, look, it doesn't matter. We're selling Prime memberships here. We're not selling commercial breaks. And I'm wondering if Al Michaels feels a little bit more free to act more like a normal fan. Well, maybe that that's just it. Is It's like it's kind of one or the other, right? It's either the folks at Amazon didn't do their homework when they signed on for this deal and didn't realize that they were getting, like, Thursday night leftovers for the season, which I highly doubt. Or their agreement with Michaels is simply like, hey, say what you think. You know, what is he, like, 77 years old? Like, you're at an age where just let it let it fly because maybe the folks at Amazon realize that that's going to be much more interesting and compelling than him, you know, waxing poetic on a game that just doesn't have the juice. Yeah, I think that 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 may be in play here. And I think, too, the broadcast team they put together, Kirk Herbstreet and Al Michaels, is an interesting pairing. As Herbstreet, we know him from the college football world mostly, and Michaels, you know, obviously uh, with his history and, you know, do you believe in miracles, like I mentioned, and whatnot. He's, he sort of brings that brand and that longevity. It's really interesting. I, I'm going to tune in just to see if Al Michaels softens next week. But, you know, hopefully he gets a little better matchup. Saints-Cardinals, it's not great. But I think the NFL's got a problem, too, with Thursday night football. Like, this, it, it is unopposed. Thursday night used to be Friends, Seinfeld. That was a great TV night. Thursday night was great. Now it is Thursday night football, and we all kind of groan, and we go, which bad game are we going to get here? And I think part of it is, the the rhythm there's a rhythm i mentioned this last week there's a rhythm to the nfl season you know monday tuesday off day wednesday you do this your thursday you're getting ready for the game like you know we're going to hear jake dicker the washington state coach coming up here uh at top of the hour you know he i'm going to my first question to dicker is going to be kind of where are you at in the rhythm of your week and you watch he will talk about sort of the rhythm of a normal week your rhythm is totally thrown off when you play a Thursday night game and you're used to playing on Sunday or Monday. 
It's 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 like you know even with the extra off time, your rhythm is off. I I wonder if the teams are off, the players are off, they're, they're distracted. It's bad matchups anyway. I think the NFL's got to look harder at it because they were very intentional in Week One to give Amazon a splashy coming out party. Justin Herbert, Patrick Mahomes, Chiefs, Chargers, boom. And since then, it's been terrible. Keep an eye on it. More ahead. You got the bald-faced truth. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I grew up playing a whole bunch of sports. We've talked about it uh, more than probably listeners want to hear, but Little League, this, youth, that, whatever. By the time I got to junior high, I was doing everything. Cross country, track and field, soccer, baseball, football. I played 11 sports in junior high. All right? Uh, I There were some of the sports like wrestling I had never done before. Really wasn't into it. But I gave it a try. I did it. You know, I played a season as a wrestler. So I understand what wrestling's about because I had that one season of junior high wrestling, right? I got a taste of it at least. Like, you know, when I watch wrestling, I go, I get it. I know how hard that is. I know how practices go. So here's the deal. Um, our third grader, our eight-year-old, is playing volleyball right now. And I actually think she's showing some promise in it. But she's one of these kids who... You know, she played soccer and did fine. And then the next season we said, we're going to sign you back up for soccer. And she said, oh, I already did soccer. Like, she's done with it. Like, you know, she's just kind of doing everything once and then moving on. And so we got her into volleyball now. And she she kind of belly aches before each practice. But I watch her on the court at practice and at games. She seems to be enjoying herself. She's very social. She's not bad. You know, she's like, seems to be making some growth. But I wonder, Anna, are we... At what point when a child resists an activity, do you let the child have a say in resisting said activity? Uh, well, it depends. Um, to be fair, I signed her up for volleyball without actually talking with her about it. I know, parenting no-no, right? But the thing is, if, like, if I sit here and ask her, hey, do you want to do basketball? Do you want to do softball? Do you want to do volleyball? More or less, her answer is always no. So I I believe in volleyball. Um, I believe in what you can learn from volleyball and as being part of a team. I think it's one of the best sports for people to learn how to work together and to you know learn spatial awareness of what's your ball and what's somebody else's ball and all that. There's there's so much in it. So I did kind of do the thing where I signed her up and then just kind of had her do it. So I'm not surprised at the belly aching before each practice, each game, each tournament. However, what I think is pretty cool is that once she actually gets there and she's got friends that are playing with her, she has a good attitude about it. Like, for the most part, like, she gets into it and she's hustling and she got some serves over yesterday at practice. You know, that that kind of thing. So um, I don't know. I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. I don't know if we're doing the right thing by sort of making her at least give it a try. But my hope is that somewhere within this season, she develops at least a tolerance, if not a love for the sport, because I think there is value in it. I'm still waiting for the first case of like a professional, high-level professional athlete going, you know what? I tried to play this sport when I was third, my parents, third grade. My parents signed me up. I didn't want to do it. 
but I found a love for it, and damn it, now I'm one of the best in the world at it. Like, I don't know if that exists. Like, I don't know if that story is out there. I don't, you know, I, I kind of think you have to have a love for something to be great at it, but I also get your logic, uh, Anna, because if we left it to her, she would be sitting around drawing, painting on her iPad, playing with her friends, and we need her to be a little more, we need her to get out there and put a uniform on and high-five some people and get the ball over the net, damn it. So I think there, there's some value in it for now. That said, there's nothing I hate more than when you sign me up for something and don't tell me about it. And, th- and that has happened. Doctor appointment, activity, barbecue, you commit me to something without telling me about it, I'm going to be rankled about it. Like, I, like, so I, I get it. So you didn't answer the question. At what age do you say to a kid, you have some say in this, or if you don't want to do it, you don't have to do it? Well, and the thing is, mostly we've said we shouldn't do this, right? Because... We don't want every practice or game to be a battle and having to convince her that it's fun. But um, so maybe nine. I mean, she's eight now. So maybe by her next birthday, she'll purely determine what what she gets to do. I don't know. Did your mom ever do that to you? Uh, Let me think. No, she didn't. Actually, my mom was like the opposite of like the classic Asian tiger mom. She really let me like self-direct a lot on what I wanted to do. Like I played softball of my own volition. I did volleyball by my own choice. You know, all those things, all the things I pretty much just did on my own and she was in a supporting role. So maybe I'm answering my own question here. My parents did it to me, Uh, Faith Peterman. Faith Peterman. I know she's not out there because Faith Peterman was about 95 years old and she was my piano teacher. Faith Peterman taught piano in our little small town and it was really weird because Faith was old then, and Faith had this baby monitor that was next to the piano that was connected to her mother, who was in the back room of her house. So I'm taking piano lessons at this old woman's house, and she had an older woman living in the back of the house, and I could hear her mom kind of breathing. <gasps> it was like Darth Vader was in the back room of the house while I was trying to learn Middle C and where are the notes and Mary had a little lamb and whatnot. But I was not good at piano. I, I'm just not musically inclined. Like, I'm just not one of those people that, like, I often say with writing, like, you know, you got to know them. You got to know the notes with writing. You got to know noun, adjective, verb, adverb. You need to know the, you need to know the notes, but you got to hear the music, too. Like, where I think good writers hear the music, right? Well, I knew the notes with the piano, but I didn't hear the music. Like, it just made no sense to me. And then I would watch, like, when I would come for my lesson at Faith Peterman's house, my mom would drop me off, and I would go in and wait my turn to sit at the piano and, you know, be scolded over what I didn't know. But um, I remember uh, watching the other kids play piano. They were gifted, like the kid that went before me would play and I would be like, oh my gosh, just keep going. Like, I don't need my lesson. I just want to listen to you play. Like, I, I didn't have that that in my skill set, not musically inclined that way. Like, I like music, but I can't play music. So um, I relate in that sense, but my parents made me go. They made me try to learn the piano. Well, that I mean, that's what I'm saying is like I, when I look at Zia, 
uh, she is athletically inclined. Like she's one of the one of the most naturally athletic kids that I've seen, and I'm not just saying that because she's our kid. Uh, I don't know how much that comes from me necessarily, probably more from you. But like when I, she's been hitting balls like a volleyball since she was like two years old. Most like she went to a volley a lot of volleyball tournaments. You know, our college kid played for years and years, and so Zia's been around the game of volleyball for a long time. So it's not like, I don't know, I didn't feel like I was trying to fit a square peg into a round hole um, because I feel like she kind of naturally has the ability to learn and she's fairly coachable, has a decent attitude. So I don't know. We'll see. This is probably one and done. One and done. But I also think, like, I agree with you. I think she is athletically inclined. Like, I think she, I think she could be a good athlete, a good high school player, uh, for a program like I think she like, like she could have a career in a sport um, but what is it about her do you think that makes her kind of pause on hey uh, you know I don't know if I want to do this her personality I mean she is of the three girls she's cerebral she's um, she's risk adverse like she she will evaluate a situation she's a rule follower like I, I kind of wonder if She's just being very analytical about the whole thing. Maybe she knows, like, she knows, hey, there's no future in professional volleyball for me. Look at my parents. Neither one of them is 6'5". And she's going, uh, you know, I need to put my efforts and my energy into other things. Maybe she's already heard us talking about NIL. She's like, I don't really see this penciling out for me. Where's the endorsement deal that's going to come with my volleyball career in high school? So maybe she's already, maybe she's beyond that and she's too far down the line. Does the, does the first grader, when you take her to soccer practice... Okay. Does she ever say, I don't want to go and then get out there and have a great time? Because that's what the third grader does. She says, oh, I don't really want to go. And then she gets out there and she has a great time. She comes home. She's in a you know good mood about it. So it's not like she hates her time there. She's just, you know, does the first grader ever do that? Very rarely. Like I can count on one hand the number of times that she has either not wanted to go to boxing or not wanted to go to soccer because those are her two sports right now. Fascinating stuff. I don't know what you're, where you stand on this. I guess we're asking, are we bad parents for having our kid play volleyball? We do that once a week on this show. Are we bad parents? Coming up, Jake Dickert, Washington State football coach. He's a dad, and he's a guy who says there's more to him than football. I'll talk to Jake Dickert, head of Washington State's game at Research Stadium tomorrow. Leave it here. You got the BFT. B. FFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. Washington State will be traveling to Corvallis on Saturday night. Research Stadium, Oregon State, the home team, 8-1 and in their last nine. Jake Dickert, the Washington State football coach, is joining us. Uh, let, let's, you know, how are you feeling? How are you kind of in the progression of your week? Like, where are you at right now, coach? Well, I just think we're on the final stages of our preparation. You know, we always do no sweat Thursday, so a very high mental day and take the physicality off of our players before we get into Fast Friday. Just ready for another great meeting space this afternoon, and it's a constant state of preparation as we work through kickoff. So that's kind of where we're at in this game against a really good Oregon State team. What do you see on film when you look at Oregon State? 
physicality 101. And I think uh, it's credit to Coach Smith and his coaching staff and how they've developed this program and the depth of their program. And, you know, I just – we got to win the line of scrimmage. You know, I think that's where they have had the advantage – really in my first two years here, uh, especially on our defense. And it'll be a really important matchup between our O-line and their D-line and then our D-line or their D-line versus our O-line. So a lot of physical uh, style of football, and I think they're playing extremely, extremely hard on defense. You guys uh, will be without a running back, without a receiver. I think you got an offensive lineman who's got to sit out in the first half. How are you feeling about the guys that will fill in? I think we're in the same spot, John, as everybody else in the country. It's week seven. We've won seven straight games, and, you know, some of those hit that up. So the next man, just like we talk about all the time, the next man has to be ready. And this will be us putting our culture on display of how those guys are finally going to get their opportunity to go out there and make plays, and we can't miss a beat. So that's been our mentality all week. It's the mentality of our program. Uh, we got to overcome a little adversity and, and play our style of football. I've been thinking a lot about home teams and what the home field is worth. Do you, you know, like traditionally people will say in the NFL, you know, it's worth three points, but I think it's bigger in college football. I think it's bigger in the Pac-12. What do you think the home field is worth? Well, I think it's a valid point. You know, I think each setting is different. The energy of each stadium is different. The mentality of each student section and, and fans is different. So I agree with you, but I don't think it's plus three for everybody. Right. You know, I know Oregon State is going to be a – a ruckus crowd. I mean, we've talked to the USC guys about how, you know, even with a half stadium, they had to go on some silent counts and it was loud. So the impact everyone, uh, you know, in Corvallis is going to have on this game is going to be high. Uh, but at the end of the day, those are outside influences, right? So I'm not a big plus three, minus three guy. It's what our guys need to do within the 100 yards of the field and not letting the outside influence uh, factor their performance. Jonathan Smith said that Ben Gulbrinson is headed towards starting. Sounds like he may be the starter at quarterback. How different is Oregon State with him back there, Chance Nolan back there, and as a coach, there's some gamesmanship there. Like, you know, you never know who's going to show up, but how do you approach that? People did text me that yesterday, and I said that 100% means uh, Nolan's going to start. That's exactly <laughs> what that means. Yeah. So what we prepared for both. I think they're very similar players. You know, obviously 10 has just seen more opportunities and, and has been in bigger moments and all that stuff. But I think, uh, you know, Oregon State, John, did exactly what good teams do last week. Okay, they went on the road with a backup quarterback and found a way to win. That's what good teams do. And uh, credit to them. And uh, I'm sure they were excited about how they did it. And it was probably kind of a miraculous ending. But they did what good teams do. And that's winning with your backup quarterback. And, you know, here's what I know about young players. Typically, the more they play, the better they get. And I think that's what will happen for 17. We're talking to Jake Dickert, Washington State head coach. Cam Ward, he's had uh, some really nice moments, some other moments uh, you know, where he struggled a little bit. What do you think the difference is when, when Cam Ward's going well and when he's struggling? I think it's not just Cam Ward. You know, I, I know Cam and I talk often about the two you know, highest praised and highest criticized guys in our program are going to be me and him. And we accept that and we own that. And it's our job to constantly get our team better. Uh, but it's a consistency of, of offense. You know, it's not one player, you know, so it's protection. It's his reads. It's his confidence in going through a progression and it's running the right route. So 
I, you know, a lot of the pressure goes on Cam, but I try to always disperse that. You know, I'll take that as a coach. We need to get better in a lot of areas, and consistency is the biggest one that we can affect. So, you know, it's been a big emphasis this week on making your play, you know, and you can't make those plays on Saturday. You have to do it throughout the course of the week. So that's kind of what I see when I look at our offense in particular and not just Cam. Coach, you know, you, you've got a, a defensive background as an assistant, and I'm curious just to know what you think about, you know, in the NFL we got this roughing the passer thing that's going on, and in college football you have targeting and you have roughing to worry about. How do you coach guys? How do you coach guys, on, especially on the defensive side of the ball, when they get to the quarterback, you want to keep them in the game, but you also want them to be aggressive. So how do you coach that? Yeah, I'll start, John, by saying, um, you know, the – the rules of the game has helped player safety, and I'm 100% for player safety, right? So that's first and foremost. The data backs that up 100%, okay? So now as a defensive coach, you know, we always talk about the strike zone. We talk about leading with your shoulder. We talk about eyes up, and we show and teach those moments every time they come up and practice in the game and really emphasize them, okay? And then the second thing, as we say, is play fast. Right? And things are going to happen in a violent game that is played a million miles an hour. Okay, And we have to accept those, and I accept those. And, uh, you know, we had a situation last week where we got a targeting call on an old lineman. That is a rare thing. right? So it's one of those things where you have to play fast in the course of the game, and you have to live with some of the aggressive penalties too. So I think it's a double-edged sword, but I'm all for player safety. I think it's very important. I think the rules have helped that. Uh, but at the end of the day, this is a, a violent game, and it's played really fast and physical, so some of those things will happen. All right, give me an idea, because you mentioned kind of like, you know, everybody's kind of at this week seven point nationally. How do you keep guys energized, focused? Uh, they're physically beat up. Um, they're in sort of the mid part of the season that, you know, can bring, a, can, can bring some distractions. How do you get your guys and keep your guys engaged? Well, I think it's our guys falling in love with the little things. You know, a lot of a lot of people, you know, when adversity strikes, the first thing coach says is we need to get back to the fundamentals. You know, I, I think here at Washington State, I never want to leave the fundamentals. And it, it's a coaching, it's a passion. And our guys, I talk about it often, every day you wake up and we have a 6.50 a.m., you get to choose your energy, right? So I, I think we've really hit this week with a lot of purpose and a lot of intent and just showing how the little things will compound. And we're still building this program, right? So there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes of development, uh, not just for our starters, but for our whole program and team. So there's a lot of work to be done. I think the carrot of the bye week being on the back end, I think really allows our guys to say, hey, let's pour it all in. And this is in a, a game that can be a separator in this league, and these are the games that, you know, we want to consistently, you know, have a chance to win, um, you know, against the Pac-12. So going on the road, I think our guys are plenty motivated, and we have, we've had a really great week of practice. We have parent-teacher comps this week in our kids' elementary school, so I'm bouncing over there and doing that. Does, does Jake Dickert do a parent-teacher conference? Well, it's amazing. Uh, four weeks ago, uh, my daughter's in sixth grade. I got a chance to go be a middle schooler for a night, right? So... <laughs> Each each class was five minutes. You got to meet and talk to the teachers. She got to show me her locker. Uh, we got to eat a late supper lunch that they would at school. Uh, I enjoy those moments. I enjoy being a dad. I don't believe football defines me. 
I uh, got an opportunity a couple Fridays ago to see my boys play flag football and uh, see my daughter play volleyball during a home game. Uh, and then next week on the bye week, it's perfect. It's parent-teacher conferences here in Pullman. So I'm going to have an opportunity to go, and I'm beyond excited about that because when I come home, we don't talk ball. You know, we, we talk about family and, and what they need to be doing in school and having some fun too. So absolutely, I, I get an opportunity to go to conferences as well. Yeah, that work-life balance is really important. Uh, you know, and I think, you know, it's the same in our household. I have three daughters over here. But do you, do you remember – you know, a favorite teacher you had growing up, somebody who made an impact in your life? Oh, it's the fastest thing that come to mind. It's Mrs. Denor, my fifth grade English teacher. Um, she just had one of those impacts on me, and we had such a fun relationship. And uh, she mentored. We had a little group of us that she really mentored us in, into where we were at that point in our life. And uh, just the relationship, I think, that we've built that I've many times when I've been back in northern Wisconsin, I've had an opportunity throughout my life uh, to get back with Mrs. Denor. She came to my wedding, sends me messages uh, quite frequently. So it's been a special relationship, and it's easy uh, to think of that when uh, you ask me that question. Yeah, I love that. I love that she popped into your mind. I love that she was at your wedding. That's phenomenal. That's making yeah. it. Yeah. 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 And then I didn't even finish uh, in the same town as her. So there was just so much respect level that uh, – you know, we had, and we got an opportunity to stay in touch. It was a, it, just a great relationship, and, and she really mentored my life. I know that you, you know, you'll think football, and you'll watch film, and you'll be prepared, but, you know, do you read? Do you binge watch TV? What do you do when you need, like, a half an hour just to kind of clear your mind of the football before you get back to it? Yeah, I'm not a TV guy. I mean, I really haven't watched TV since the season started. I, and I don't even watch much football games because every once in a while, John, that stresses me out. Yeah. Uh, like the situations of what I want to do. I, we really just spend time with family and like that I play football boys in the hallway and they have their touchdown. I have my touchdown and, you know, we'll play a little uh, volleyball with my daughter. I, I try to be active more than not. And uh, those moments are so precious during the season. So, not a not a TV binge watch guy, so um, open to when I get those moments to really be engaged and have a conversation with my family. Can you watch flag football or volleyball and just be a parent, or are you evaluating <laughs> hustle, footwork? Hey, are you mentally engaged? Because I wrestle yeah. with that. <laughs> Here's the funniest part, John, is that when we go to these games, I'm quiet, and my wife is the one that is getting after the boys and their effort and the coaching, and she is – you know, she is on it. And I'm pretty, you know, I just observe. You know, the only thing I said after the last I was so impressed with the opponent's uh, flag football coaches. They were running plays with no huddle with kindergarten through second graders. <laughs> I was like, you guys have a future. I might, I might want to get them in the building a little bit. So other than that, I get an opportunity to take pictures and videos and enjoy. And, and trust me, my wife takes care of everything else. I love that. Uh, we're talking to Jake Dickert, the Washington State football coach. All right, uh, I asked, I've asked other coaches this, and I get a variety of responses, but when are you having the most fun as a coach? You know, it's amazing for me. Um, you know, like I said, I, I love Friday nights. You know, it's an opportunity for me. We have one of our three team meetings of the week, and I don't just talk about the game. I talk about life. I talk about culture. We actually are reading a team book uh, every Friday night. We read a new chapter and it's those connecting moments. And I tell our guys all the time, the scores will fade. The moments will last forever. You know, and I try to get them to understand, like, live in this moment. Right? These 20 minutes, we get to do this as a team. And, 
we'll do trivia night and we'll sing the school song and, and we'll get serious and do what we need to do the next day. But live in those moments. And I try to remind myself as a coach to do the same thing because, you know, I, I love this team, John, and I want to coach this team as long as I can. And we need to earn more opportunities, but the season goes by so fast. Uh, those are the moments that I, I just really look back on and have a chance to mentor people and, and to see their faces when, you know, we have those good meetings and good messages and show them great things they're doing and fire them up a little bit. You know, I, I live for those things. So that that's the first thing that comes to mind for me. What are you guys reading? Uh, the Twin Thieves. Um, it's a book that actually uh, Steve Jones, uh, one of my former teammates, who went on to be a wildly successful, uh, the winningest coach in Wisconsin history, and he wrote a book during COVID, and it's overcoming the fear of judgment and the fear of failure and how they rob us of a lot of our joy and giving them a toolbox uh, to attack those things. You know, I'm a big believer in sports psychology and, you know, just a lot of different things that, uh, you know, my number one job, John, I know I get judged on winning games, but it's really protecting these guys' future and the men that they're going to become in this world. So I just think of a lot of different ways to present the same messages that are within our culture and and uh, it's been fun, and it's very interactive, and, and then hopefully our guys really appreciate appreciate it when they're, you know, my age at some point. Yeah, I, I love that concept, that the, the twin thieves being failure and judgment and the fear of failure, the fear of judgment. And uh, I think that book, that book, too, also deals with leadership and how good leaders yeah. are good listeners. Exactly right. There's so many concepts for our guys because I think there's pressures on today's student-athlete that nobody talks about. You know, and that really derives from social media. And to put yourself out there in today's world is a hard thing. People are scared of getting judged, right? And the fear of failure in sports performance paralyzes players. It does out there. And, you know, self-talk and overcoming mistakes and what we talk about, the learn, burn, return method to overcoming adversity. You know, so create a toolbox. Don't just talk about it and weaponize your players against these things. And it's been a great resource for us as far as creating a championship mentality, okay, because champions act like champions way before they become champions, right? So I know that's real philosophical, but it's a little glimpse of the window of how we try to train our players, and, um, you know, Saturday will be a big test of that. All right. Coach, I appreciate you uh, giving us a book recommendation and giving us some of your time. Wish you the best. Good luck to you. Always, John. Appreciate what okay. you do for our league. Yep. Thank you. Oprah Winfrey's got the book club. Maybe we need to start a BFT book club. The Twin Thieves by Steve Jones and uh, Lucas uh, Jaden. Uh, that's the book, uh, How Great Leaders Build Great Teams. There you have it. I want you to leave it here. You got the bald-faced truth statewide on the BFT radio network. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. We all have heard wild recruiting stories. I remember when I was covering Jerry Tarkanian, the late Jerry Tarkanian, who was uh, a legendary basketball coach, uh, Hall of Fame basketball coach in college hoops, national championship, Final Fours, UNLV, uh, all that. Uh, Tark told a great story about recruiting. Like, he told a story one time about Frank Sinatra on this show that uh, he was recruiting an Italian kid from 
who was from New York and whose mother loved Frank Sinatra. And, and Tark got Frank Sinatra to make a call on his behalf to the mom uh, to try to get the kid to come to UNLV. And uh, Tark told another story. Jim Calhoun, the Connecticut coach, Tark and Calhoun hated each other. Like, they had fierce recruiting battles. But maybe uh, there was respect among, uh, I don't want to say thieves, but respect among uh, rule benders. But uh, Calhoun apparently, Tark insisted that Calhoun told a recruit that Jerry Tarkanian was dying of cancer, tried to get him to not go to UNLV. Because uh, he told Tark, he told the kid that Tark was dying of cancer. I mean, it's cutthroat stuff. So I heard the story of Adrian Peterson's recruitment. It's a wild story. Ed Orgeron talking to Dan Patrick on the Dan Patrick Show. Who broke your heart? Is there one that stands out? Oh, Adrian Peterson. Oh, man, I loved him. I loved Adrian. Oklahoma better offered a better package to no, him. This this true story. We go we go down to see Adrian. Me and Pete. And uh, his mother ran track at, I think it was at Houston, wonderful lady. And Adrian and I had a great relationship. He loved Pete Carroll, but I felt like he and I were very tight. One time he says, Coach, I uh, went to this school. He says, Coach, I want you to follow me. I couldn't, I couldn't drive with him. We went 30 miles. I said, I don't know where we're going. We stopped at this little country store, and he bought a gingerbread cookie. I couldn't buy it for him for supper. And then we went to a basketball game, and we sat in the, sat in, the, in the gym, and I said, what are we doing? He said, you see that guard right there? I got to play him next week. Coach, come and scout him. How about that? <laughs> then he, I said, well, Adrian, what is the key to getting you here at USC? He says, Coach, well, Bob Stoops, my dad is incarcerated. Bob Stoops won't see him. Well, me and Pete Carroll tried to go get him. And to go see him, they wouldn't let us in. But Adrian said, Coach, my dad is be able to watch my games where he's at. Well, if I go to Oklahoma, I tried to get the guy transferred to Los Angeles. <laughs> Wait, you tried to get Adrian's dad? Yeah, yeah I tried. <laughs> How does that happen? Uh, I competed. I competed. Couldn't get it done, but I competed. He competed, but he couldn't get it done. Ed Orgeron attempted to get Adrian Peterson's father transferred to a prison in Southern California so that uh, so that uh, his father could watch him play. And uh, maybe he would have gone to USC if that could have come true. Like, look, anybody who's been around college athletics understands that, like, wild things happen in recruiting. And uh, obviously, I think with name, image, likeness, and the transfer portal on the scene, there begs a discussion here about... Uh, what has changed, or is is recruiting dirtier now than it was once upon a time? Like, I literally wrote uh, uh, I wrote a column about recruiting a few weeks ago, and I I mentioned Jerry Tarkanian as a NIL pioneer. Like Tark, I I, I really do feel like he had uh, some vision here. Like he would have loved the name, image, likeness era, because I do think there was part of Jerry Tarkanian's heart that really did care about kids and really did care, especially about kids who had sort of lost their way. And, you know, there was a place for him in college basketball at that time because he was at UNLV and he was uh, later at Fresno state and he was taken in like the second chance kids. He was, he was the father Flanagan of college basketball. Like he literally was 
taking kids that had were on their second or third chance, and he was giving them opportunities. Now, with the transfer portal in place and name image likeness in place, I like some stories come to mind. Like I remember Chris Heron, Rafer Alston, Avondre Jones, uh, you know, the the Fresno State teams that were highly ranked in Tark's tenure uh, on that tour that he did in Fresno, that, you know, there were stories about uh, booster parties that they would have with incoming players, incoming recruits, where, you know, all the boosters would show up and everybody would bring a $100 bill and they would walk around and they would do $100 handshakes with all the recruits. And so all the recruits, the recruits were walking out of there with three or four or $5,000 in $100 bills and the boosters were walking out of there feeling like, you know, they had done something in the spirit of name, image, likeness that probably is uh, something that would be more acceptable today. It wasn't acceptable then. It would be more acceptable today. Now, I've been thinking a lot about the transfer portal, name, image, likeness, coaches, right? Which one's the bigger issue? Coaches will say both. Uh, I think in part because we are seeing sort of the evolution of college athletics before our very eyes. You know, we're not, we're not sure what it is going to become. Does it become semi-professional sports? Does it become something else? Uh, you know, it, is it, it will the NCAA ever grow teeth back in order to legislate some of this stuff? It's ridiculous how off the rails it feels right now. And in fact, Washington State, you know, Cam, Cameron Ward and Washington State, they're coming to Racer Stadium on Saturday. And Cameron Ward, NIL deal with Washington State and the Cougar Collective, you know, he's got like $80,000 uh, in in... Uh, revenue in a deal there. He's got a pickup truck. He's got an apartment. He's got some walking around money. He's got enough money to, you know, be able to fly his parents who are school teachers out to games. And so I, I just think it's it's an interesting time for me, especially because I can remember covering Tark and having to watch what he was doing and what boosters were doing. A player would show up with a, you know, with a car and you had to ask, like, you know, where how did they get the car? And uh, it, it was it was different man it was really different time and i look back now and i can remember sitting and having lunch with jerry tarkanian once upon a time and he was literally lamenting a story about you know a kid that he was recruiting who was so poor that they were using ketchup for spaghetti sauce when he went over to the house for the home visit and he was trying to tell me at the time that you know the kids need help and that some of these kids the scholarship's not enough and there were agents, of course, lurking in the background that were always willing to give advances to players in exchange for those players essentially handshaking and saying, hey, I'll sign with you when, when and if I'm ready to be drafted. And the agents would you know, buy him a suit or give him some, a couple thousand dollars in cash. Or, or in some cases, it was a lot of money, right? It was bags of money. We know now, looking back, some of the corruption that was taking place in college athletics in the 1970s, 1980s, even into the 90s, was ridiculous, and I'm just wondering now if any of us thinks that it's going to be any cleaner or any different with name, image, likeness, the booster collectives. Yeah, it's more out in the open. Like, I think we all know Caleb Williams is getting some deals. We all know the quarterback at Miami got, you know, seven-figure deal. We all know that, you know, the rumors and the and the you know the the players who obviously have deals that are out front and out in the open, but it makes me look back at the 1980s and 1990s a little differently. It makes me look back, I think, with more empathy towards the players who were 
just, you know, on scholarship, but also, you know, in the background of that, there were boosters who were obviously offering inducements, enticements. There were assistant coaches and coaches who were involved in impropriety and whatnot. The NCAA completely lost its way. Cracked down in the 80s and 90s. You know, investigations were haphazard. You know, in one case, they would be really uh, tough on a school. And in other cases, they seemingly would look the other way. And, you know, I just, I I don't know if this system's any better. I don't know if we're going to have less corruption. But it does feel more out in the open. I think if we're all being honest with each other. But that story with Ed Orgeron and Adrian Peterson and whatnot, I mean, and, and Tark saying he had Frank Sinatra call the recruit's mother to try to, you know, influence her back in the day. Can you imagine that? Um, you know, it, it shows you that, uh, you know, all's fair when it comes to recruiting, right? I want you to leave it here. You got the bald Face truth statewide. Back to the bald Face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. can't get the image of Oregon losing to Georgia in week one, that 49-3 debacle at, at Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta. I can't get it out of their minds. Like, I, and I don't blame you. Like, I was there, and every time I see Oregon take the field this season, I compare what I'm seeing on the field to what I saw that day. It's true. Like, you know, you never get a second chance to make a first impression, as they say, right? And uh, your parents or your grandparents will tell you, hey, first impressions are important. Well, Oregon's first impression under Dan Lanning this season was an absolute unmitigated disaster on the field against Georgia. All right. Uh, tough game, obviously. Really, you know, credit to Georgia. They did a uh, phenomenal job preparing uh, their team for us. You know, they uh, they outcoached us. They outplayed us today. They did, a, they did a really good job. You know, that being said, I think our players, you know, that locker room's hurting a little bit, but they're ready for an opportunity to grow. I've heard people say, the national pundits say, that Oregon is not going to be a factor, that Oregon, uh, uh, you know, a one-loss Oregon team would not get playoff consideration, which I think is nonsense. I think it's idiotic to say that at this point of the season. There's too much ball left to play. We don't know what's going to happen in front of Oregon in the college football playoff uh, world uh, and in the polls, certainly. And we also don't know uh, what Oregon is going to do from here on out. But that, I, uh, I think, is part of what the joy of sports, is that we can sit around and we can talk about the what-ifs and the who-gonnas and uh, what if this happens and what if that happens. And, you know, that's part of what the diversion is when it comes to sports. Frankly, it's why this radio show exists in the first place. Like, we're not time-traveling here. We are speculating on a daily basis and giving analysis and opinion on a daily basis. That's part of my job, like to come on the show and tell you what I think. So I think it's idiotic for national pundits on the four-letter network, especially, they're the most guilty, to go national and come out publicly and start talking about how a one-loss Oregon team wouldn't get consideration. I think it's idiotic. I think it's ridiculous. And, and, and I don't think it's accurate because... I do think a one-loss Oregon team with a loss to Georgia, if Georgia is the best team in America, 
still can make a case to be included in the top four teams and get another shot at Georgia. Now, I know the college football playoff selection committee uh, in, historically has rewarded teams for playing a tough non-conference schedule. So, But will they reward Oregon for taking on Georgia in what was essentially an ambush in a road game in Atlanta in week one? That becomes the question. But here's the path for Oregon getting to the college football playoff. Because right now, all the models, the projections, everybody's looking at UCLA, everybody's looking at USC saying these are the best two chances that the Pac-12 conference has to get to the playoff. But I'm going to present an alternative theory here in this segment. I've been promising it all week, so I better damn well deliver it. So Oregon obviously needs to take care of business. It rebounded out of the Georgia game, put 70 on Eastern Washington, beat BYU at home handily, went to Pullman and won a tough road game and a tough place to win, scored 29 points in the fourth quarter, came from behind to beat Washington State, blasted Stanford at home, blasted Arizona on the road, so here's what's left for the Oregon Ducks. It literally is six games, plus a possible conference championship game. That's it. You have seven opportunities, if you're the Ducks, from here on out, six in the regular season, plus the one. You have seven chances to commit, to convince the playoff committee that you are worthy of getting back and getting a rematch with Georgia or whoever else is in the playoff. That's what this is all about. So here's what I think Oregon needs to do. And, it, and it's not just... As simple as, oh, they got to win seven in a row and be a, you know, a one-loss, 12-1 uh, and one team sitting there for the committee. You know, that's, that may not be enough. But here's what Oregon needs to do. Obviously, a week from Saturday, they will host UCLA in a game that will get a ton of national attention. And that's where the campaign starts for the Ducks. And, I, I, you know, you talk about not having a chance, a second chance for a first impression. I actually think this is about as close as you can get to getting that second opportunity to make a first impression. Oregon hosting UCLA, Autzen Stadium, Chip Kelly, ESPN, everybody watching this game and going, this is this might be the best two teams in the Pac-12 playing each other. This is going to be a huge audience, uh, a lot of interest. There may be some people rubbernecking just to see what UCLA is about. That's fine. If you're Oregon and Dan Lanning, that's fine. Let them rubberneck because this is going to be your show. If Oregon is getting to the playoff, on October 22nd at 1230, in front of a national TV audience, Oregon lays it on UCLA. Not, doesn't just eke out a victory, but makes a statement in the way like Utah made a statement last year against Oregon. Oregon's turn to make a statement here against UCLA at home. Now, Autzen Stadium, huge advantage. Of course, people are going to consider that. But it, I, Oregon has to punch UCLA in the nose in this game. They need to beat them. They need to beat them convincingly. They need to send a message because the playoff selection committee is watching this kind of matchup to say, hey, where do these guys fit? Where do they belong? A lot of people nationally starting to think about UCLA as a contender. After Oregon blasts UCLA, they need UCLA to turn around and do some work on their own. Now, the Bruins, they've got some games after that. You know, obviously, they have Stanford. They have Arizona State. They have Arizona. They have a game against USC on the 19th of November. What I would like to see in that game is I would like to see USC win that game. I'm talking about UCLA-USC now. USC win that game on the 19th of November, but win it close. I also would like to think if the Oregon is getting to the playoff, 
part of what would help Oregon get to the playoff is for USC to go to uh, Salt Lake City tomorrow and beat Utah in front of a uh, an audience that will be awfully curious to see if USC is any good. You see where I'm going with this. We want USC undefeated when they play Oregon in Las Vegas at the end of the season. So you need USC to beat Utah. You need USC to beat UCLA. I don't want to see UCLA lose to anybody else but Oregon or USC for the rest of the year. So you essentially have a two-loss UCLA team that has losses only to Oregon and USC, and you have an undefeated USC team waiting for Oregon in Vegas. Now, Oregon doesn't just need to beat UCLA. Uh, They make a statement against them, right? Then they turn around a week later, they go to Cal. Oregon needs to win that game and win it with some style points. Then they go to Colorado, win that game, win it with some style points. Then they host Washington, win that game, win it with some style points. Then they host Utah, win that game, win it with some style points. Then it's Oregon at Oregon State in the game formerly known as the Civil War. Again, win that damn game and do it with style points. So if you're Oregon, it's a simple equation. Like, obviously, the path for Oregon is win these games and win them convincingly in the next uh, six weeks after, uh, you know, when they when they come back off the bye week. But they're going to need some help. They're going to need USC to stay undefeated. They're going to need UCLA to only lose to USC because you want Oregon to look as good as it possibly can in front of that playoff selection committee. I don't know what else is going to happen across college football. I don't know what, you know, Alabama, Tennessee are going to do. I don't, I don't know what Michigan and Ohio State are going to do. Uh, you can't control any of that if you're the Ducks. All you can control is the game on October 22nd at Autzen Stadium, then Cal, Colorado, Washington, Utah, Oregon State. Now, if Oregon gets to Las Vegas for the Pac-12 championship game as a one-loss representative in the conference championship uh, matchup against an undefeated USC team, of course all the eyes and the attention are going to be on USC. But Oregon then gets an opportunity to make the same match that they would make against UCLA, this time on a neutral field in Las Vegas with the selection committee watching. I, I actually do think, like, a win over UCLA convincing, a win over USC convincing, beating Utah, being a 12-1 and team. I, you know, I've heard the national pundits say that UCLA at 12-1 and or USC at 12-1 and it would be more impressive than Oregon at 12-1. and I, I'm, I'm scratching my bald head on that one because if Oregon's only loss is to Georgia, that for a bulk of this season has been regarded as the best team in America, how do you hold that against Oregon? Like, how do you, how do you, like, I've heard people say UCLA could lose to Oregon, still get to the conference championship game, win in Vegas, and they would be, uh, you know, a more attractive candidate at 12 and 1 than the Ducks. To me, that's asinine. Like, that's just ridiculous. Like, you're really going to say losing to Oregon is okay, but Oregon losing to Georgia isn't? Like, the transitive property just tells us by extension that, uh, you know, if, if you lose to Oregon and Oregon lost to Georgia, you're not better than Georgia. So, you know, I, I think, you know, all Oregon can do down this stretch is take care of business and then hope that USC gets there and looks formidable and that UCLA holds up over the course of the season. Style points matter. But I think there's one other thing that Oregon can do. If we're talking about getting to the college football playoff, Oregon's got to craft a new narrative. I talked about that first impression.
the first impression was Oregon's not ready, right? That's what everybody came away from the Georgia game saying. Oregon's not ready for the stage. The stage was too big for the play. Dan's not ready. Does he know what he's doing? Remember all of those questions that were swirling in the wake of 49-3. to Kirby Smart, I've got better players, all that stuff. You don't, I think if you're Oregon, you, one of the things Oregon does better than any other program in the Pac-12 and maybe in America is Oregon knows how to market itself. Oregon knows who it is. Oregon knows that it's about uniforms. Oregon knows that it's about brand. Oregon is very comfortable in, the, in whatever uniform it's wearing on a game day. But what Oregon needs to do is craft a narrative in the next six or seven weeks that says to America and to the selection committee, this is a different team. Something has transformed. This team has evolved. This team has changed. I would expect to start to hear some of that talk in the run-up to the UCLA game. And certainly if they beat UCLA coming out of that, listen carefully to what Dan Lanning is saying. Listen carefully to what Bo Nix is saying. Listen carefully to what Rob Mullins, the athletic director at Oregon, is saying. Because I think the narrative is going to shift a little bit into, you know what, we're a much different team than we were in week one. Oregon's got to start selling that. And it can't wait until week 9, 10, 11 to start selling. It has to start selling the idea that this is a different team. Get the narrative out there and change the conversation. That is how Oregon gets to the playoff. Because there's going to be some chaos. There's bound to be some chaos in the SEC. There's bound to be Big Ten drama. There are teams capable of beating other teams as this season goes on. But all Oregon can control is the story it's telling on the field and off. Later in the program, John Wilner of the Bay Area News Group and I will give our picks for the Pac-12 games. Keep it locked in here on this great Friday. You got the bald face truth statewide on the BFT Radio Network. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I wrote a column today that I know the subject of the column is not going to like, but that's not often the case. I guess it, I guess it is. I mean, I guess there are occasions in which I'm critical of sports teams or general managers or conference commissioners, and I know they're not going to like what I write, but this was different because it was largely a positive column that I know the subject isn't going to like as well. Ryan Divish works for the Seattle Times. You heard him on this radio program earlier this week. He covers the Mariners as a beat reporter. And I wrote about him today. Uh, I wrote about him because I read every word that Ryan Divish writes. Not because I love the Mariners. I don't. The Giants are my team. I read Ryan Divish because he's a really good reporter. He's a really good writer. And for a long time, I wondered how much losing can one human being take? Read the column. It's at johnconzano.com if you want to get uh, behind the scenes. But I vowed when I started the new writing endeavor that I was going to take people behind the scenes, take them to places they had never been before. So I am taking you inside baseball, literally inside baseball, with this piece on Ryan Divish. Now, I have believed for many years that lots of journalists can turn a decent, non-deadline story on a low-stakes game. Like, I think a lot of people could put together a competent, account of a game uh, that happens at noon on a uh, 
uh, Saturday or Sunday afternoon, and there's no there's it's a low stakes game. It's just a regular old game. I think a lot of people can do it well. I think the biggest separation in the industry occurs on deadline when you have limited time to write with big stakes and you have historical context. I think those three factors are big separators. And I've watched uh, high-profile journalists uh, who, I'm not going to name names, but high-profile journalists that you read and you know or you see on TV, I have seen them melt down. I have seen them not uh, get their report in. I have seen them claim that they're having technical issues and end up, uh, you know, the truth is I'm sitting two seats from them and I can see that they're not having a technical issue. They they just are melting down on deadline. I mean, it is it is a uh, it is an absolute stress chamber, and you had better have some metal to you, and you had better have some ability to you, or you can't do it. Now, I've had the pleasure of working with a lot of people who can turn a deadline story over the years, but one of the things that I have marveled at this season in particular with Ryan Divish of the Seattle Times is the fact that he's not just spelling everybody's name right. He's not just score right. He's not just messing it up. He is uh, taking you with him along this journey. Now, it's a remarkable season for the Mariners this season. 90-72 and 72 in the regular season. They make the playoffs for the first time in 21 years. Divish is there telling the story to the Seattle Times readers. But the truth is the audience is growing and growing and growing as this season's going on because there is more interest in the team. And naturally, the bandwagon starts to fill up. And I thought one of the most interesting things that I saw from a beat reporter in recent memory, it came from Ryan Divish as he tracked this team and wrote about this huge moment, this huge moment where the Mariners clinched. You remember the moment like, you know, they get the walk off home run. Uh, here comes, you know, Cal Rowley to the plate, two outs, bottom of the ninth tie game. And Ryan Divish's first four paragraphs of his game story were remarkably well done for somebody writing on deadline, writing with the stakes and the history and the context and the gravity of that moment. It did not swallow him up one bit, and I think it was really interesting to watch him operate. So I wrote this column about Divish, and if you were here earlier this week, you heard him talk about you know growing up in Montana. He grew up in this, this uh, small town in Montana called Haver, Montana, and his first job at the the community newspaper, Circulation 3500, uh, the Haver Daily News, and he's sitting 22 miles from the Canadian border, and he talked all about covering this team over the years, being there for, you know, uh, watching them lose 101 games in his first season. They lost 101 games in his third season. I did, a, I did some quick math on this. The Mariners have lost 1,217 regular season games since Ryan Divish got on the beat. This is his job. All of that losing, all of the stories you have to write in bad seasons and try to make the games interesting or the people interesting or you know, try to find something to say that is relevant or interesting when the season's headed nowhere. Uh, he did a great job with that, but now he's doing a great job with a really compelling season, and I think it's equally interesting to kind of watch him operate and watch what the Seattle Times in particular is doing amid all of this. I think it's really, really fun to watch. But if you are a sports writing junkie, if you like to read sports writing, read my piece today on Ryan Divish at johnconzano.com. Get a free subscription. Get a paid subscription. I always say get what works for you. But read this piece because Ryan Divish sees the little stuff. And the little stuff 
matters when it comes to sports writing. Details matter. And a lot of reporters don't get it. They don't give you detail or they don't know which details are important. They don't or they miss details or, you know, they're so focused on uh, the big picture or even on deadline. It just eats them up. And it's really unfortunate sometimes to see like big game stories not deliver. But, man, uh, the Seattle Times is doing a really nice job delivering this postseason. The Mariners have their work cut out for them. They're down two zip in this American League Division Series. They're coming back home. Game three is at home uh, tomorrow, and it's going to be a big weekend in Seattle sports, of course, but I'll be reading Ryan Divish, and uh, I bet a whole bunch of Mariners fans out there will be reading him as well. All right, coming up, we got the 5 at 5, plus uh, John Wilner and I make our Pac-12 conference picks in hour number three. That's right, the happy hour still ahead. What's on tap is coming up as well. You got the bald-faced truth statewide on the BFT Radio Network. I appreciate that you are here along for the ride. I'm trying to take you behind the scenes, take you somewhere that you don't normally get to go. Uh, the happy hour on a Friday, always interesting and always fun. Leave it right here. BFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with a bald faced truth. You're in the happy hour. Every five o'clock hour is the happy hour. I appreciate you being here along for the ride. Uh, if you uh, have been here for the whole show, you heard Jake Dickert, the Washington State football coach in hour number two. He talked about the game that is going to happen tomorrow in Corvallis at Reeser Stadium. Cougars taking on the Beavers. Uh, if you uh, are here, you also heard Anna and I talk about Al Michaels. And we I, gave you, I finally gave you Oregon's path to the college football playoff. I delivered on my promise from earlier in the week and gave you that. Coming up later this hour, John Wilner and I will give you the picks for the Pac-12 week. We'll talk about that. It's clearly an elimination week in the Pac-12 as you have, like, as I look at the, the landscape of the Pac-12 conference, it's evident to me that, you know, Las Vegas, the two teams that get to Vegas, again, no North Division, no South Division this year in the Pac-12, but the two teams who get to Vegas this season um, are, are going to be Teams that probably have one loss or no losses, okay? I, I think two-loss conference teams, I think it's going to be very difficult for teams with two losses in conference play to get there. It, it's why I think there's a bit of an elimination weekend going on, like Washington State at Oregon State. Ben Gulbrunson likely a quarterback for the Beavers. Uh, Washington State at Oregon State, that's going to be an interesting game because I think that um, the lose game is probably – now uh, out of you know the the talk about the conference championship game and and realistically look there are four teams that you really can pencil in right now in the path as the true contenders until we have more notice it's USC it's Utah it's Oregon it's UCLA those four teams probably two of them are playing in Vegas like I think Oregon's going to get to Vegas that's my pick I think it, I think there's a very good chance it could be Oregon and USC in Vegas but there's some ball left to play here obviously USC playing Utah Tomorrow in Salt Lake City, Oregon will play UCLA next week. UCLA and USC play each other. Oregon plays Utah. 
So there's a chance here you can have multiple teams locked up in a tie, and I think that's what Oregon State and Washington State have to hope for because if they can get themselves into a three- or four-team situation where they are tied, the tiebreaker then does not become head-to-head competition. It becomes record against the next highest-rated opponent. So Oregon State, Washington State, not this thing, not eliminated, but if whoever loses that game is, is definitely eliminated, I think, from getting to Las Vegas. Washington has an outside shot as well. A puncher's chance, but I just don't see Washington getting there, given the fact that you know they lost to Arizona State last week. Um, I want to go with the five biggest stories going on in sports. I don't need the benchmark, but I want to talk about the five biggest stories that are going on, because I always give you that here in the 5 o'clock hour. Let's start with Deshaun Watson. How about number one, Deshaun Watson? Suspended Deshaun Watson is now facing a new lawsuit stemming from a massage in 2020. It's the 26th known lawsuit Filed against Watson, it accuses him of inappropriate sexual misconduct or sexual assault during a massage. It was filed yesterday in Harris County, Texas. He is solicited. He apparently is accused of soliciting a plaintiff over Instagram with a direct message for a massage at a Houstonian hotel room in in December of 2020. While he was with the Texans, he he apparently pressured the masseuse into massaging him in certain areas and. Uh, in the lawsuit, the plaintiff has suffered from severe depression and anxiety since the incident. Of course, uh, Watson's attorney uh, told ESPN that he will not make comment, does not know the identity of the plaintiff. Uh, there's also 26 lawsuits, so what are you going to say? The NFL said in a statement that Watson's 11-game suspension will stand as is, but he could face more discipline if it's found out that he is further violated the league's code of conduct. Cleveland Browns, meanwhile, you get what you pay for when it comes to Deshaun Watson. NFL has fined Tom Brady. That's story number two in my five at five. Uh, Tom Brady, Buccaneers quarterback, has been fined $11,139 for attempting to kick Falcons defensive end Grady Jarrett uh, on that sack during the Bucs' 21-15 victory over the Falcons last week. The NFL notified Brady of the fine today, after reviewing the play where Jarrett was flagged for unnecessary roughness. You remember the play? Jarrett was flagged, bunch of controversy. Uh, the rest of us looked at it and went, this is tackle football. What are we doing here? It was third and five, three minutes left in the game. The Bucks got new life, allowed them to close out to the game. But uh, apparently the NFL fine, we learn, for striking, kicking, or kneeing is $11,139 for the first offense, and $16,444 for a second offense. Don't ask me how they arrived at that, but this feels a little bit convenient to me. Like, I think the NFL knows that it had a problem, at least a perception problem, with Tom Brady, you know, drawing the flag for unnecessary roughness on a play that did not look like unnecessary roughness. It looked like a good football play by Grady Jarrett. So I think the NFL knows it has a perception problem, and I think the NFL is being very persnickety, very nitpicky, uh, with Tom Brady, because this isn't, it wasn't much of a kick. It was kind of a half-hearted half-kick for Brady, but I think the league doesn't want the perception that it gives Tom Brady favorable treatment. So, uh, you know, Bucks coach Todd Bowles said he was un- unaware of the kick. Um, Falcons coach Arthur Smith said he had no comment. Moving on, next story, story number three. Jerry Jones has brushed off a reported riff with Washington owner Daniel Snyder, There was a story published yesterday about a rift between Jerry Jones and Dan Snyder. 
Jerry Jones said during his weekly Dallas radio appearance, quote, anything in that was news to me. I don't have those kinds of problems, end quote. I think a lot of owners are are positioning themselves that way as Daniel Schneider apparently has retained uh, a private investigator and a legal team and instructed him to go dig up dirt on all these other owners in the league. Uh, Cowboys spokesman declined comment to the Associated Press. Uh, Snyder is facing a lot of heat. A lot of people want him to sell the team. They want him out of the league. There's been some talk about league owners uh, singling him out. Snyder obviously not feeling good about how he's being singled out, and it's really interesting to see Daniel Snyder and Jerry Jones apparently at odds, even though Jerry Jones doesn't know it. But this is going to be ugly for the NFL. It's it was ugly when John Gruden's emails came out. Man, it was it was ugly. It was it was bad, right? For the league, it was bad for Gruden. It was bad stuff. The this is going to get worse. The NFL owners, uh, I suspect, you're going to find in in corners of the NFL probably didn't conduct themselves as decent human beings. Like some of these owners are scumbags. I think we're going to find that out, and I think we're going to find it out courtesy of a scumbag, Daniel Snyder. But the fact that. Daniel Snyder and Jerry Jones have taken vacations together with their wives and families, and hell, they even filmed a Papa John's pizza commercial together in 2010. Uh, The fact that those two guys may be at odds, I don't mind that. Number four in our five at five, how about Ron Rivera? He threw Carson Wentz, his quarterback, under the bus uh, after last week's game, but today he is strongly defending his role in trading for Wentz. Rivera ended a news conference after... Washington's 12-7 win over the Bears uh, last night. He said, quote, I'm sorry, I'm done. He got up, he walked out. Rivera was fired up for much of the news conference, upset about undisciplined play, animated about what his players had been through in the past four games, all of them losses, but he saved his most heated comments for those who were critical of Wentz. Now, on Thursday, it was reported that Daniel Schneider was the one who wanted Wentz. Washington traded for him last summer. Rivera strongly denied that the owner demanded that they trade for Wentz. And uh, Rivera said that, you know, he, he just isn't talking about it. He doesn't want to deal with it. He said, quote, everybody keeps saying, I don't want anything to do with Carson. Well, beep. I'm the beeping guy who pulled out the sheets of paper, looked at the analytics, watched the tape when they were at Indianapolis, and that's what pisses me off because the young man doesn't deserve to have that all the time. Then he ended the news conference. Help me out here, Ron Rivera. Do you want Carson Wentz or not? Didn't he throw Wentz under the bus after last week's game? Now he's saying, everybody, get off his back, and I wanted him. He's awesome. I don't know. Uh, Ron Rivera feels like a guy who might be teetering a little bit himself. Finally, our fifth story. How about Ryan Fitzpatrick on the Amazon postgame show last night after Thursday Night Football? He said that Justin Fields needs to look in the mirror and ask himself, what am I? Then he went on to say, you're not Peyton Manning, you're not Patrick Mahomes, you're not a pocket pastor, you are a Cam Newton type. You're a guy who is an elite runner of the football. Is Fitzpatrick wrong? He's taken some heat for those comments today. I don't think he's all wrong, and I think Ryan Fitzpatrick is there on that broadcast crew to uh, to talk about you know what he sees. He's there as an analyst, right? That's his job. He's doing his job, but he's taking heat from it. I, I don't mind Fitzpatrick saying this. Like, hey, look and see who you are. Is he not a pocket passer? Well, until he improves as a pocket passer and starts, you know, basically stops missing layups in the red zone, 
I, I think you got to kind of wonder if uh, Justin Fields is better off making plays and not getting comfortable in the pocket. Like, put some pressure on the defense. It's the name of the game. By the way, everybody mad at Ryan Fitzpatrick? Richard Sherman said the exact same thing in the same segment. Give me a break. I think this is a case of people getting upset just to be upset. By the way, if you stick around on Thursday Night Football for the postgame show, you might need a hobby. All right, coming up, my Pac-12 picks. John Wilner and I pick the games. You'll hear Wilner and I debate it in the next segment. Who's going to win the Oregon State-Washington State game? Who's going to win USC at Utah and why? Wilner and I do not agree on all of these picks. We will kick it around coming up. By the way, if you aren't already subscribed to the Kanzano and Wilner podcast, make sure that you're subscribed. We have a huge guest coming down the pipeline early next week. It is a big one. I want you to get that interview. I don't want you to miss out on it. Wilner's coming up. What's on tap? And also, I'm going to tell you in the final segment of today's show, I'm going to tell you some things that I learned this week. Oh, yes, that's ahead. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I don't know what you're doing with your Saturday. I don't know if it's youth soccer or if it's uh, volleyball or whatnot. We got a little bit of uh, everything going on in our household and also a whole bunch of college football uh, John Wilner and I have a podcast called the Kanzano and Wilner Podcast. We go through the Pac-12 games every week. And I just want to give you a snippet of what that podcast is like and also let you in on kind of what we're thinking when it comes to the Pac-12 games. John Wilner of the Bay Area News Group, San Jose Mercury News, he's covered the Pac-12 for years. He and I don't agree on everything, and we obviously are not going to agree on all these picks. But we will start with the Cal-Colorado game 11 a.m. Pacific time on the Pac-12 Networks. John Wilner, what do you see? I see a new coach, uh, another new coach for Colorado, this interim, Mike Sanford's the interim coach here after get, they got rid of Carl Durrell. It's just the turnover in Boulder is immense. They did it at the right time, right, with the bye week, so they had extra time to prepare. Cal also extra time to prepare. I mean, I just don't – to me, Cal's not really built to – to blow teams out, especially on the road. I, I think this is going to end up being closer than, than any of the Colorado games to this point, uh, closer than 14 and a half. I think it could be, you know, Cal pulls it out in the fourth quarter is kind of what I expect. Yeah. I, I look at this one. It's 14 and a half points. I, I, I like the bears on the road and I wrote all, all today, you know, in my column about how home teams are faring well, especially against the spread. Like, there's ridiculous some numbers out there. By the way, Pac-12 teams have played 28 games this season with the home team favored by Vegas. The home teams have a 27-1 and record in those games. They win these games outright. The home favorites are winning games. They're also 21-7 and against the spread, which is ridiculous. 75% Ooh. win rate for home teams that are favored. But Cal's on the road in this one. I think it's an outlier. I, and I, I like Cal to win. I have it 28-20. I agree with you. I think the Bears win. I don't think they cover the 14-and-a-half, though. I think Colorado shows a little bit of life. Yeah, I mean, this is it for Colorado. The, a whole new start, you know, and they've got their, their freshman quarterback, Owen McCown. You know, he's had a couple of games now, a couple extra weeks of practice. I think that they're going to, you know, they're going to represent better than they have, certainly, uh, and give Cal a little bit of trouble. So it'll be interesting. The longer they're in the game, the more chance – 
you know, the the pressure turns to turns to Cal side too. I, they the the Bears need to you know blow this thing open in the first half. Arizona at Washington, two thirty p.m. Pacific time, Pac-12 networks. I'll go first on this one. Uh, two teams that really like to throw the ball. Michael Penix Jr. at Washington, Jaden Delora at Arizona. Both teams over 300 yards average uh, per per pass game. But I'm going to go with, um, you know, the home favorite in this one. I like Washington to win this game. I don't think they've forgotten Jaden Delora planting the flag at midfield after the Apple Cup game, you know, when he was at Washington State. So I think Washington wins this one, but I don't love the spread here. 15 points, 14 and a half, depending on where you look. I think Washington wins the game, but I don't think they cover. I think it's 40 to 31 Huskies. Yeah, these are two bad defenses. Uh, and for Washington, it's crazy. Their secondary, which was the strength for all those years, or sometimes it was the best secondary in the conference, is now a weakness. And I think Arizona, Delora, he's going to be comfortable going in there. Uh, and Arizona's got, you know, other than SC, Arizona might have the best group of receivers in the whole conference. I think that th- this is going to be a ton of points. Uh, the total 72 and a half. I'll tell you what, I that's a big total, but I would not be surprised, given these defenses, if it's over 72.5. I also like Arizona to cover the number, though. Uh, just just back and forth, you yeah. know, tons of, tons of big plays, tons of bad plays, turnovers, kind of a wild game. You know, kind of like we, would, we uh, saw, remember the UCLA-Washington State game was like, I don't know, 63-62 or something? I think this game, both teams could be in the 50s easily by the end. It's going to be crazy. Stanford's at Notre Dame, 4.30 p.m. Pacific time on NBC. Uh, Irish are a 17-point favorite playing at home. Uh, I think Notre Dame wins this game. I can't pick Stanford to win. I just haven't seen enough from Stanford. By the way, Stanford is last, dead last in the country with turnover margin. They are minus 11 now. Uh, I'm interested to see how Stanford bounces back after the Oregon State backbreaker last week, but I got it Notre Dame uh, 30 to 24. Yeah, I kind of like uh, Stanford to cover as well, right? I mean, they they have played in when they go to South Bend. They have there have been times where they have pl- kind of played up above what you'd expect, uh, and I, I think that of all the team, all the places to go after that crushing loss to Oregon State, you know, going to South Bend, that's you're going to get motivated for that game. Uh, no matter what. So I'm kind of with you. I think Stanford's going to cover. Uh, don't think Stanford's going to win, but I, it could it could end up being close. Look, Notre Dame couldn't, they couldn't, you know, put Cal away. They couldn't put BYU away. I don't know that they can cover 17 against Stanford. USC's at Utah, 5 o'clock Pacific time on Fox. Utah's won 11 straight home games. Last team to win at Rice-Eccles, the Trojans in 2020. I have been thinking all week, you know, the, Utah is going to be Utah, and SC is going to, you know, is going to come up short. And part of because you watch SC play, they're a little bit sloppy, uh, especially on defense. Well, they rely heavily on turnovers. But I kind of, I'm starting to think that SC kind of brings the hammer. And this is the week SC says, you know what, we are the team to beat. Uh, Utah is no longer uh, the cream of the conference. And the Trojans, their defense is getting better. Uh, I, I kind of think SC is going to surprise everyone and win this game handily, which I could end up regretting that that prediction. But but something just tells me we're going to see 
something we don't expect, and that would be a USC, a lopsided win for USC. That would be probably good for the conference, right, because it keeps USC in the college football playoff hunt, but I, I just think USC's flawed, and I want to see them on the road in a tough place to win, and what yeah. what is the home field advantage worth? Because I think if this game is at a neutral site, I would flip my pick, but I have Utah 35, USC 31, Pac-12 cannibalizing itself. Um, I, I just feel like... <laughs> Utah's playing for a whole bunch. If they lose this game, it doesn't eliminate them from the conference championship. But if Utah loses this game, they would they would lose the head-to-head tiebreakers to two teams that would still be undefeated. It, it, it all but eliminates them from Vegas. So I think they're playing for too much. They're playing at home. I'll take the Utes. Like I said at the beginning, the home favorites, uh, farewell uh, when it comes to the Pac-12. Utah's a home favorite. Uh, that spread is down to minus three and a half, but... I'll take Utah, and I think they barely cover, so we disagree on that one. Final game, a little bit of an elimination game. Washington State's at Oregon State, 6 p.m., Pac-12 Networks. Man, I think it, it could end up being the same thing that's happened for eight straight years, which is the the Cougars. You know, this is one of those series where it's a there's a funky streak in, in a series, and who could explain Washington State went an eight in a row over Oregon State, right? I mean, you could see, you know, Utah, one of the, you know, top programs having that kind of dominance over another program. But the I think of these as fairly even. And yet the Cougars have won eight in a row. And I think that they're the better team right now, partly because of Oregon State's quarterback issues. But I just think Washington State's better. Their defense is going to keep Oregon State from, from, uh, making big plays, and it's going to be close, and the Cougars are going to find a way to win. I think the home field, again, I'm going with the theme. I started talking about the home field and, and what it means and how home favorites are, 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 are winners in the Pac-12 conference. The trend is your friend. I'm going with Oregon State. Jonathan Smith told me he, he, that Ben Goldbrunson is headed towards starting. I don't know what headed towards starting means. I think everybody's headed towards starting until they're not, but – uh, Goldbrunson should be at quarterback. And, you know, Washington State's playing without uh, their starting running back. They're playing without Renard Bell, their starting slot receiver. Offensive tackle Grant Stevens is sitting out because he got flagged for targeting. He'll miss the first half. So I'll take the Beavers where they've been, they've been very good at home in the last, uh, you know, seven or ten games. I'll take the Beavers at home. Uh, I think it's uh, like something like 28-24. I'm going to go lower scoring. Uh, and again, let's go back to you know Oregon State at home, eight and one at home in their last nine, three and seven in their last ten on the road. They are a different team at home than they are on the road. I'll take the Beavers in a close game at home. And you were there for the SC game. That was the one, right? Eight out of yep. nine, the, yep. the one they lost. And and I'm sure that you know the atmosphere played a big role in that one. And it could too, right? Washington State has not played great on the road. Uh, 14 points against SC when they get 17 at Wisconsin. So, yeah, I mean, I think the the best bet to me on that one is the under, right? Total is 52 yes. and a half. I could see that one being first team to 20. Yeah, I think uh, it, it goes under, but I just, I like Oregon State at home. I think at Reeser Stadium, they're a little different team. Uh, but, you know, what is the home field worth? I asked Jonathan Smith that this week. He, he, you, know, he you know, I think it's worth the home field advantage in the Pac-12. I think it's worth somewhere between seven and ten points. Jack Coletto, the linebacker at Oregon State, says he thinks it's 14. Jonathan Smith said he thinks it's more than three. He kind of agreed with me, maybe seven, maybe ten, maybe eight points, something like that. What do you think the home field is worth in a typical Pac-12 game? 
I mean, to me, it depends. Is that typical game at Autzen when it's full or is it at the Rose Bowl when there's <laughs> 35,000 people there, yeah. right? I mean, it does depend on the location, but I think you're right. At some of the places, it is worth, you know, uh, upwards seven, eight, nine points. There's no question about it. And both the impact it has on the home team with the energy, but also the impact that noise can have on the opponent in terms of, you know, calling their plays and communication issues. So it, to me, it just depends where you're talking about, but there's a lot of places where it, it's significant. Yeah. I think uh, we'll find out this week. Uh, again, I'm picking a bunch of home teams except Colorado. I can't bring myself to do it. Wilner, I think the big one we disagree on is USC and Utah. That's going to be a fantastic game. I can't wait to, uh, talk about it <laughs> these days anything can happen anything can happen all right john wilner i appreciate you and uh, all the people uh at home listening appreciate you as well thank you everybody follow him on twitter at wilner hotline coming up next what's on tap you want to know what you're supposed to be watching this weekend and a couple things i learned this week stay tuned Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I'm already looking forward to the weekend. I hope you are as well. We have a lot of fun on the show. I appreciate uh, everybody who makes this radio program part of their day. Seriously, I'm humbled. If you listen to the podcast, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. If you don't listen to the podcast, subscribe to the podcast anyway so you don't miss anything. If you miss the show or if you're taking a flight or you're making a drive, this is a great way to pass some time listening to the podcast. Great way to uh, get engaged and informed. And if you're driving down to the football games or you are flying somewhere and sitting on a plane or you're uh, making a 20-minute drive across town, grab a episode or an interview from the Bald Face Truth radio show like 3 million people have done in the last year. 3 million downloads. That's crazy to me to look at those numbers. More and more people consuming uh, the podcast, and I encourage you to do that as well. Even if you're a diehard terrestrial radio listener, if you get the podcast subscription, which is free, so you should do it anyway, uh, if you hear an interview you really like, what you can do then is share that interview and be like, hey, Tony, check it out. I just heard this great interview uh, on Kanzano's show, and here it is. Bam, I can text it to you uh, or email it to somebody. Uh, really easy to do and uh, really uh, will show people that you are technologically savvy if you can do that. Every uh, Friday, we do a benchmark. It is called What's on Tap. What's on Tap for the weekend? Let's do it. Now, it's time for What's on Tap and What's on TV at the Independent on the BFT. Love that. Let's start in the Pac-12 Conference where Cal is playing at Colorado 11 a.m. on the Pac-12 Networks. That's tomorrow morning. Arizona gets the 2.30 slot. They're visiting Washington and the Huskies. Arizona, Washington, 2.30 on the Pac-12 Networks. Stanford's playing Notre Dame on NBC. That game is at 4.30 on NBC. David Shaw trying to right the ship. USC-Utah, that's the game of the week in the Pac-12. 5 o'clock on Fox. Is USC a contender? Is Utah fading, waxing, waning? What are they doing? Game's at 5 o'clock Pacific time on Fox. Washington State at Oregon State. That's the nightcap. 6 p.m. 
As I turn the focus to the NFL on Sunday, uh, Sunday morning, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Fox, 49ers-Falcons. Be sure you tune into that one. Uh, Niner fans like myself, very interested to see what the Niners are going to do. Packers and Aaron Rodgers trying to right the ship. Also at 10 a.m. against the Jets. They're hosting, though, the Packers are. Uh, in the afternoon, the Bills, 4-1 and Bills, at the 3-1 and Chiefs. The Cardinals are playing at the Seahawks. Both of those games, 125 and 105 p.m. respectively. The Sunday night game, Dallas Cowboys at Philadelphia Eagles. And on Monday night football, it's not really the weekend, but I'll give it to you anyway. 5-15 Monday, the Broncos at Justin Herbert and the Chargers. That is what is on tap for your weekend. I appreciate you uh, uh, trusting my advice. Uh, I said it earlier in the week, and I said it on the uh, Kanzano and Wilner podcast. That's another podcast you should check out. But I had a neighbor one time. His name is Brian. I'll tell you about Brian. Brian worked um, a very cerebral job. But Brian was also a huge fan. He was from the state of Texas. And I knew that because he talked with a Texas accent. But Brian, uh, one morning came over and knocked on the door. He knocked, and he was like, and I opened the door. I was like, it's weird. Who's knocking on my door? Like, that's not something that happens regularly for us. Like, you know, we don't get a lot of door knocks, but um, not unannounced door knocks anyway. So I opened the door, and I saw Brian, and in that instant, I was like, oh, did my dogs get out? Oh, did, like, did I park in front of his mailbox? Um, it, does he need to borrow a cup of sugar? Like, I don't know. Like, those are the kinds of things that go through my mind, Right. But what turned out was Brian was sitting at home, and he was flipping around channels. Uh, I think it was a Saturday morning. He was channel surfing, and he wasn't sure what he was supposed to be watching. Like, he was, there was a bunch of SEC games on, a Big Ten games on, Big 12 games on. And so he was like, I wonder what Kanzano's watching this morning. And because I was covering a Pac-12 game later in the evening that was either at Oregon or Oregon State. And so he moseyed across the street to ask me what I was watching. It's a true story. But the sad part of this tale is that uh, I invited Brian into the house and I said, uh, you're going to be surprised at what I'm watching. But I happen to be watching like one of those HGTV DIY programs, like, you know, rebuilding a house or ripping out a kitchen or doing something like that. And or maybe it was a garden show. I don't know. All right. I'm embarrassed, mildly embarrassed to share this. But the truth of the matter is that often... Uh, I am looking for a diversion outside of sports, and it's why we started watching uh, The Old Man on FX. Anna and I found that show this week. I don't know if you are a longtime old man uh, on FX uh, viewer, but that is a really good show. Have you guys seen that one? It's a C former CIA uh, agent. It's based on the novels from Thomas Perry. The Old Man, though, the series... Stars Jeff Bridges. And I like Jeff Bridges. I like some Jeff Bridges in my life, like in, on the TV screen. And John Lithgow's in there, too. He's really good. Uh, and, and, and Amy Brenneman is in there. But it centers on a former CIA officer who's living off the grid. And he now finds himself, after hiding out, uh, on the run. And I'm not going to spoil this because uh, they want him gone. It's a thriller. But it, uh, it is, a, you know, the old operative on the run kind of a badass he's a lone wolf and he's out there doing his thing so i we watched one of those episodes i think it was last sunday night we just kind of flipped around and there was nothing there was no new episodes of of uh the you know, the steve carell the patient that one's really good too if you're not streaming that one check that one out steve carell's in this 
series called The Patient where he is a therapist and one of his patients is a serial killer. It's really interesting. There's also a Martin Short, uh, Steve Martin, two-man variety show that is out on Netflix, I think, that's pretty entertaining. But we were flipping around, needless to say, and couldn't really find something that, you know, was that we were locked into. And I said, let's try The Old Man, like, because a friend of mine had recommended it. And I have to tell you, like, there's something about, like, pilot episodes, first episodes, they, sometimes they fall short, or you can feel them that, like, they don't quite know what the series is about, and so they're kind of fumbling around. But probably because this is based on the novel by Thomas Perry, the old man, same name, probably because of that, this series knows exactly what it wants to be, knows exactly where it wants to go, and that first episode was like hook, line, and sinker. It's a smart show. It doesn't dumb things down. It doesn't try to, you know, to, to make things easier for you, and, you know, it doesn't insult you as a viewer. Uh, I, I really like that. The other series that we are checking out on Hulu is The Bear. If you haven't seen The Bear, I talked about this earlier in the week. You you need to check out The Bear. Comedy, drama, again, really smart. Uh, it centers around a chef from the world of fine dining who comes back to Chicago and he's running his family's sandwich shop because his brother um, left it to him and is gone and... I don't want to ruin the plot, but, you know, it's um, really good. And and uh, Carmen is, uh, Jeremy Allen White plays Carmi, or Carmen uh, Berzato, who is the award-winning chef. But, like, that one's really good, too, because there's so much in that one that is very relatable, and every scene feels like it's so well-written. Like, you know, I don't know who's written it, I don't know who is responsible for it, but I guess it was FX as well, FX on Hulu. Uh, is where you can find it. But check out The Bear. Check out The Old Man. Check out Martin Short and Steve Martin in their two-man variety show on Netflix. And then, uh, since What's on Tap is the start of this segment, um, also check out The Patient with Steve Carell, okay? When you're done with that, get back to me. I'll have more for you because this is the public service that we provide. Like, I used to give a lot more movie ratings. We still go see movies. But I feel like I'm doing... um, more binge watching these days, uh, especially after traveling around and covering so much college football. I just, I kind of need that HGTV diversion from things. I think you need balance in your life is what I'm saying. I think we all need a little bit of balance in our lives. But uh, I had promised people that I was going to get out with this new endeavor that I'm doing at johnconzano.com. And if you are not yet subscribed at johnconzano.com, get there, get a free subscription, get a paid subscription. Whatever works for you, get there. Because I'm out there, and my main mission with this whole project is to bring you in-depth, sourced reporting and commentary that you can't get anywhere else. I love a good, heartwarming story. I also love to break news. I love to tell you and give you analysis. And uh, I also have vowed that this endeavor is... Uh, so wildly important to me that I am going to chase the stories where they are. And this weekend is no different. I will not be where people expect me to be. But if you subscribe at johnconzano.com, you will see what I'm talking about because the show is going on the road, so to speak. Um, all right. Coming up, <laughs> final segment. I've given you what? What you're supposed to be watching this weekend. 
I've given you some binge-watching shows. I've told you where to read me. But uh, coming up next, I'll give you some parting thoughts for the week. I think it's been a great week of radio right here on the show, and I appreciate that you're part of it. Leave it here. Some final thoughts coming up. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, every week, every Friday, I, uh, I I don't often share this on air, but every Friday I make a list of what I learned this week, and I bullet point it, and it's right here in the studio that I do it. Like, just on a notepad, I will, during the course of the week, uh, jot down something I learned on today's show, or that morning, or in some interview that I did. And often, you're in the same boat, so you're hearing some of the same interviews that I'm hearing, but... This week, I wrote two interesting things down on the notepad that sits beside me in the studio, and I want to share them with you. I think every Friday in the final segment, I may try to do this. And I know Stephen, Sean, Judah, interns, they're rolling their eyes at me, board operators and producers of the past and associate producers of the past uh, in the last 15 or 17 years will all attest to the fact that this show goes where it wants to go like it's scripted to a certain extent like there's a skeleton that we put out every day 12 segments in the show in a three-hour show and i have a couple of guests and we have some benchmarks like punch it audio or the big splash or what's on tap that you just heard in the last segment but by and large the show goes where it needs to go so they will roll their eyes and tell you that even though Kanzano's saying let's do this every friday i'm going to tell you what i learned this week that sometimes uh it becomes a fad. So here's what I learned this week. Two things that I learned this week that I think are interesting and I want to share with you. First and foremost, um, you know, I, I mentioned this on Wednesday's show, but my my oldest daughter turned 20 this week. 20. I got a 20-year-old. It's crazy. Now, I'm not one of these people that feels old because I have a 20-year-old, but I am one of these people who remembers her at five and six and seven. And as people have told me over the years that the days are long and the years are fast. Uh, it, that's true. Like, it goes fast. But one of the things that I wrote down on the notepad was it relates to something I mentioned at johnconzano.com uh, on Wednesday when I noted that it was her birthday. And if you're a subscriber, you got it in your email inbox on Wednesday morning. But um, I noted that when I went to drop her off at college last year, when we went to make that drop at the dorms last year, I've, I've shared some of this, that... You know, the things that I was concerned about were little things. Does she know how to lock up her bike? Does she know where her classes are? Does she know, uh, you know, how to, how to get into the dining hall and how to use her meal plan and all that stuff? And, you know, does she know better than to take a drink, an open container drink from a stranger if she's at a party or something like that, right? Like, I, as a dad, I'm going through, like, this checklist of things that I didn't prepare her for. As we're dropping her off. And I'm trying to get her attention. I'm trying to say, hey, do you know how to lock up your bike? Do you know what you're doing with this? Uh, don't take a drink from anybody. Um, you know, and, and in the end, what I realized, because she was super scattered when we were dropping her off at the dorms last year. She's now a sophomore in college. But she was super scattered. But as we pulled away from the dorm, I was fretting over the details. She was not even thinking about them. She was focused on what was happening, you know, five minutes from now and an hour from now and next week and all that stuff. She was looking forward. I was looking back. Uh, common thing with parents and kids being dropped off at college. Like, it's why parents are sad. 
when they're dropping their kids off at college. You get sad because you're nostalgic and you are lamenting the loss of childhood and, oh, your kid's going to be farther away and there's going to be an empty seat at the dinner table and uh, her bedroom or his bedroom is going to feel empty when you're walking through the house. Like all those things, we're all looking back. The kids are looking forward. They're thinking about the friends they're going to meet, the places they're going to go, the things they're going to do, their classes, whatever, having fun, whatever. So they're excited, and the rest of us are sitting there glassy-eyed going, oh. So I was fretting over all these little details, uh, especially that bike lock. I don't know why that bike lock became so important to me. It was almost like, as a dad, that should have been one of my duties. Does she know how to lock her bike up? Because... Uh, by and large, she never really locked her bike up as a kid. She just threw it in the garage and did what and left it, whatever. And I was thinking, you know, she's going to have to lock this bike up. Does she know how to use the lock? She's never used it before. It's a brand new lock. We just bought it for her. Does she know what she's doing with it? And so it was really interesting to me. A few days after that dorm drop-off, I kind of came to grips with this. She called and she informed me that she rode her bike to class and she locked it up and everything was just fine, Dad. Uh, and by the way, I, I, I had glassy eyes. But... I realized that the work that you do over the first 15, 16, 17, 18 years of your child's life is far more important than the final few words. And for people out there that have kids, you know if you've got a teacher how fast it goes. And you, uh, you know if you have a little one and you've had other kids how fast it goes. But I feel like I am a better dad and a more attentive dad because I've had the older daughter and I've seen how fast it goes and it happens. And, of course, I've learned from my mistakes as a dad and things I would do differently, you know, and, and I talk about some of those things. Show like when I'm telling you that I think sports is a safe place for a kid to fail and you shouldn't be interested in gaming the system. Let your kids struggle and toil and work through it themselves. I'm speaking as a dad who tried to intervene a few times and stepped in and realized like, gosh, really, should I be, am I really helping my kid if I'm helping her have short-term success and, or am I helping her more if I let her struggle a little bit and just support her and allow her to work through an obstacle, uh, you know, improvise, adapt, overcome as the uh, Marines say. So I realized in my time that the, the real work that I had done in my child's life and she's now 20 not so much a child, but the real work was done, you know, at age 6, 7, 8, 12, 13, 15. And if you've put in the work and you have been there and you've been attentive and you've, uh, you know, not stepped in and let your kid, uh, you know, not stepped in and intervened every time your kid had an obstacle or a problem or a challenge in their life and let, you know, trust in them, give them the uh, belief in themselves that you believe that they can solve something, like if I hadn't if I hadn't had that experience, I wouldn't be sitting here today to tell you like it's okay to watch your kid fail and just support them in sports or struggle and support them because I learned that the real work was done over a couple of decades, far more important than the final few words or the bike lock or whatever I was going to do, you know, because I I literally saw my kid in college blossom and be successful not because I was stepping in and fixing things for her, as parents often do, but because I hadn't stepped in and fixed things for her over the years. She had the confidence that she could deal with some adversity, problems, class. She didn't get in class. The bike broke. The brakes broke. whatnot. She, she troubleshot all that stuff, and I was insanely proud of that 
And I realize now that, like, you know, I was worried about the bike lock. Like, that was minor league stuff. But anyway, she's 20 this week. Super proud of her. She, uh, you know, is interested in special ed. She's also uh, got a real talent, I think, for marketing and PR. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what she does with her life. The second thing that I jotted down on my notepad, it's it dovetails nicely with the, with kind of my daughter turning 20, but I wrote a column on Tuesday about Nova Newcomer. She is the Community Relations Director of the Seattle Mariners. They're in the playoffs. If you know Nova and you know her story, you know that there was uh, a, a lot of turmoil in her childhood. Her mother was incarcerated. Drugs were in the picture. Drugs were in her father's picture as well. She uh, was removed from her mother's home by Child Protective Services, and she bounced around a lot. And the only stability or the real stability she had in her life was baseball and softball. She had a love of the game of baseball, and she played softball. And she said something really interesting in my interview with her. And if you haven't read that column, you should read it. It's at johnconzano.com. You can find it if you go into the archive and look back a couple of days. But, you know, she said something about, you know, what sports did for her as she was bouncing around at new schools and whatnot. And, you know, she said, look, she her first year, you know, in middle school and in high school, those were tough years for her. She didn't have that stability at home. And, in fact, there was a lot of chaos and there was a lot of turmoil in in her primary home. And so sports gave her a place to escape. It gave her confidence, but it also introduced her to people and gave her relationships and familiarity with people at her own school. I can't overstate the value of sports in kids' lives. Like the the, you know, the studies will show you that kids who play sports get better grades. They have fewer behavioral problems. They are uh, less likely to have instances of teen pregnancy. Um, you know, there's some natural byproducts with sports that, you know, statistically uh, should make you interested in them for your kid. But one of the other things sports does is it allows healthy kids who have a positive outlook to just be around other healthy kids who have a positive outlook. They're working on a team together chasing something bigger than themselves. I think it's really cool. Read the uh, column on the journey of Nova Newcomer. It's come full circle. It's just amazing that she's in the big leagues as a 45-year-old rookie front office executive with the Seattle Mariners. And when you read the story and you understand her history, her family of origin, the chaos that was there, you understand that the game of baseball put its arms around a little girl once upon a time, and that little girl has grown up to work for the Mariners. Pretty cool story. All right, I want you to have a great weekend. Uh, I am uh, going to be weighing in all weekend on college football. If you are subscribed at johnconzano.com, you will get that stuff in real time. I encourage you to do that. Grab a free subscription, grab a paid subscription. Whatever works for you works for me. In the meantime, I uh, also want you to uh, put your arms around your kids, get outside, enjoy the great weather, and have a great weekend. For Stephen, for Sean, for Judah Newby, for all the interns, I appreciate you listening to this radio show.